Welcome, everybody, to the Witness Underground podcast. We're talking today about Witness Underground, the documentary, and we're specifically interviewing Gary Alt during our Kickstarter campaign. This is a Kickstarter special episode. If you go to witnessunderground.com, it's the last day, last couple of days. We end Friday at midnight. <laughs> Anthony Matheny is now pointing at Gary and or the campaign link that might be in the <laughs> episode. Um, Go there, check out our campaign, support it if you can. Now we're in a stretch goal. So it's super exciting because we actually got the, the minimum funding that we needed to accelerate this project. Um, and this is an opportunity to support the artists that are in the film directly. Um, all the funding is now compensating the artists. So please go and help us hit our stretch goal and support the artists in the film. Gary Alt, how are you doing today? Good, good. How are you doing? Doing good. Good. And... Anthony's going to help co-host the episode today. Thanks for coming, Anthony. Anthony's a co-producer on our film. Okay. Well, great job. I mean, great connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Gary, as I understand it, you are a blues artist. You've given me a number of um, songs. We can we're going to check those out today. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us about your history with music and this religion. Okay. Uh, wow, that's a big question. It's two different things that do intersect. Um, I started, I mean, for, first of all, I was not raised as a witness. I didn't come in until I was 15 years old. It was all on my own. It wasn't because of my parents or anything. It was just because I I was looking for answers to something, and I, and I thought I found them. But I was into music as far back as I can remember. Um, I, I mean, my parents' record collection, which was really sparse. My mom had a lot, like a lot of um, um, 78s in a closet, like a lot of Mozart operas and stuff like that, but we had no way to play them. So their actual LPs were fairly limited. So I just remember Chopin. There was a Van Cliburn uh, album called My Favorite Chopin. I, I just ate that alive. It was just such a great album. And then I think most houses had the Tchaikovsky um, suites from three ballets, and everybody called it the Nutcracker album because that was the main one. So, yeah, so I listened to that stuff incessantly, and um, they had a lot of other stuff in their collection that was horrible i thought like ferranti and teicher if you ever heard of them just this piano duet that just destroyed things you know made, made what we call wallpaper or or uh, dentist music or elevator music i know i always hated that stuff new from an early age i recognized it as being really phony uh but anyway you know then i i i uh i grew up with the am radio basically so motown and beatles were really really big for me because i was that age um <laughs> Uh, you know, it kind of dates me, I guess. But, you know, okay, whatever pop was on the radio, I liked at the time, and I sort of outgrew it. But I never outgrew mm -hmm. Motown or the Beatles. To me, it's always vibrant. And um wasn't until, I don't know, fifth grade or something like that that I took drums in the school band. They offered, you know, what do you, whatever you want to play, and I just took drums. But that gave me exposure to the whole idea of playing in a band with a leader. And, you know, they put me in the orchestra. I was in the chorus. They wanted me to do everything because if, if you show some ability, they want to use you, you know. Um and then I eventually started guitar playing, didn't take lessons, um, but, you know, I just sort of taught myself. And by then I was really, really listening to, I mean, I, I was, uh, well, I was always into the Beatles, you know, but I started to listen to Eric Clapton. I discovered around, right around the time Cream broke up in 69, but I went back to the earlier recordings with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. And to this day, I'll, I'll, I'll say that that to me is like the most important record in the world. For me, it was anyway, the mm. Blues Breakers would. Eric Clapton. Um, so I learned, it introduced me to the blues, but it was kind of a, an indirect way because the blues is an American product, right? Which white America didn't even know about, I don't think. It was just, you know, those those people in the Chitlin circuit, you know? 
Um, how long do you think that period was where it was sort of not white people music? <laughs> um, like well, I mean, the blues was really like from the twenties on, I guess. I mean, it was really, um, I, I mean, I really can't think of any white artists that were doing the blues. I mean, you know, there, there were people playing jazz and, um, which can have a connection with the blues, you know, but, um, what, what basically expensive Aerosmith collection and him and I got really into the blues, but I feel yeah. like that might've been one of the introductions to probably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was the same with me. Cause what it, what it was, was that when the, when that musical went over to England where they don't have the problem with race, like we do, I mean, there's racism everywhere, but not like in America, it was just ridiculous and really super immature. Um, and they, and these white boys, like eight, 10, 12 year old boys, like the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton and whoever else were listening to all these, these old blues records, you know, and they, they played what they played and that's how I heard it. So I heard blues from England hmm. and that's wow. how I discovered it. I went back and discovered Muddy Waters and, and, and you know, Howlin' yeah. Wolf and all those guys. But, and then of course, rock and roll just came from the blues, you know? So it's all, it's all black music. You know, that's the thing. I don't think people realize it. Most mm -hmm. of our greatest music in this country, in my opinion, is, is African-American in nature. Um, Jimmy so, so, yeah, so just, he's got some mm -hmm. like great blues songs, Jimi Hendrix. I absolutely love Jimmy, but he's yeah, like, I yeah. almost attribute him to like heavy metal, punk rock origins. Um, definitely huge blues influence. And obviously he's like the king of rock. Um, and even noise, like he was doing insane things. And, and so he like, he almost like birthed all these genres and it's definitely not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He <laughs> shaped it, you know, I mean, anybody could get feedback, you know, it's pretty easy. You just put it up too loud, you know, um, and let it, let it go. But he shaped it and he made it musical. You know, he, he was really amazing. And you, you hear what I hear in a lot. I mean, I'll just throw a name out there. The name Albert King who's a, a great blues guitarist. You hear Albert King in just about anybody that knows what he's doing. And you hear a lot of it in Jimi Hendrix and Steve Barry Vaughan's playing. So anyway, uh, that's that's what I got into, and uh, and so you know, then I took piano lessons. And somewhere, I don't know, somewhere when I was in the middle of my piano lessons, this is the first time I was actually taking. Well, drum lessons were were you know musical instruction, but not not like with a melodic instrument. Some somewhere in the middle of my piano lessons is when I got exposed to the witnesses uh, with, with a, the guy that was my best friend. Actually, I knew him since the age of three, and um, but I didn't know he was a witness actually. Because he didn't, you know, it wasn't his choice. It was his mother's choice, you know. So he was like half in, half out, you know. And now he's he's totally out, by the way. He's been out for like much, much longer than me. But anyway, I, I, I uh, started studying. And I never I never left music behind. I, um, I realized pretty early on that I was not going to make a career out of it the way I thought I would originally when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and I just watched Jimi Hendrix burning his guitar at Monterey and, you know, and I, I wanted to, I, I never wanted to burn my guitar, but I wanted to do that stuff on stage. But, you know, you realize that it means touring and it, you can't have a no normal family life. And even though I didn't have a family yet, I was still a teenager. I knew I, I knew I didn't want that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, so it had nothing to do with the witnesses um, turning that off. What I did was I kept my hand in and I thought maybe I could be a studio musician, you know, cause you could just, you, you know, back in those days, that was a fairly viable thing. And I, you know, I visited certain studios and things like that. But in the meantime, I kept playing, you know, writing songs with friends in school. Um, but, but of course, getting more deeply into the into the JW lifestyle. And so I eventually, um, I don't know. I guess at some point in the 
I want to say the eighties, maybe late eighties or something like that. I just ended up selling everything I had, all my instruments, except my piano. I always kept my piano. Um, cause what, mainly cause what, my kids were playing it. What did, why did you sell everything? I just got so frustrated with it. I just, because I want to be, I want to be at a certain level. I don't want to regress and, you know, mm-hmm. wake up one day and find out I don't know how to play anything anymore. You know, I don't have time yeah. to, to, to teach myself like, like I did when I was 12, when, when, you know, you're, when you're 12 years old, you're, you're a sponge, you're in learning mode. You got nothing but time. You can learn mm-hmm. anything. Uh, when you're look, you get, as you get older, it's a little more difficult, you know? So I, I just thought I was getting really discouraged with it. And I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I just thought, I just thought maybe uh, um, I should just not worry about this anymore. Um, but very quickly, my, my then wife got me a, an acoustic guitar as a, uh, an anniversary gift. Cause she realized that that's, I can't live without, you know, that's impossible. So as soon as she did that, I started writing songs because I thought I got to do something with this. I got to do something. And I never really wrote songs seriously. I, every once in a while I did one. I wrote with a friend of mine back in high school who was actually a very good writer. But I just I just wrote the occasional tune, you know. But now I was like, n- now, I, now I'm really going to you know do something with this. I started out making songs for the witnesses, actually. You know, How does that like, work? Uh, well... I, I wrote is an album called Aliens Heart. Some people may have heard of it. Um, it's embarrassing now, but um, but it was. But I was proud of it at the time because because I did the whole thing. I I wrote, recorded, I engineered, I did everything, you know. And I, I sold it through Carl Stoops catalog. If you're familiar with that, I don't know if they're still in business. But they, sell, they they sell like they're in Missouri, I think, and they sell like service supplies. Like I don't know, um, oh, like oh wow, door to door as a yeah 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 yeah. So like book so book bags and stuff like that. So I, I think I did hear it. about that. Back yeah, in the day. yeah, yeah. So I sold it out. I, actually, I sold out every. Uh, I think initial order is a thousand. You know, it was at the time, and I sold them out. Okay. So all but, those um, Jehovah's Witnesses that are listening to this, I know there's so many of you. Um, you can you can sell your Jehovah's Witness records through this Jehovah's Witness magazine out of Missouri. So go check out the Stoops magazine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it took some convincing. It really took some convincing. When I did, I did a second album, which is called "It's About the Kids." And that did very, very well, but I sold it mainly through eBay. I don't know. I mean, I, that's just what I did because I didn't have any kind of a web presence. And I was like, it, Stoops wouldn't take it because of a, because of a comment that I made on the uh, liner notes that they thought was going to create. <laughs> uh, basically, I had recorded some background noise at the Kingdom Hall, just people talking as part of the part of a song. And I mean, it was all super, super positive JW directed stuff, like all, you know, just four JWs, you know, not, not kingdom melodies or something horrible like that. But, and I just said, I just said that uh, parts of whatever the song was were recorded at the kingdom hall. And they said, Oh no, no, we can't, we can't do that because you know, that, that associates the kingdom hall with recorded music and there's gotta be royalties. And, you know, I said, okay, forget about it. You know? So, and then I think that they would be excited about it. Like that doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. But the first album was, was, it was, Right, right. I mean, the first one I did, which was uh, uh, it was it was a CD, but um, uh, it it took some real convincing for them to even put it in their catalog. I had to send them tapes and assure them that you know listen to the lyrics, and, and they they got excited about it. They said, "Wow, this is really great. This is these are really good lyrics, and you can hear everything, and you know whatever." And um, and so they put it in there, and it, it was in there for years. I don't know what's going on with it now, but um, and then I made a third one, which which I finally decided I was going to use electric guitar, even with some distortion, some drums. So it was any, anywhere from like folk music to rock music and some blues. And, and, but again, it was for the JW community and it went nowhere, nowhere. 
And I don't know if it's because because they heard some, you know, gu- guitar s- solos with distortion, or I, I'm not sure what the problem was, but I know <laughs> well, my circuit That's where the devil is. The devil's yeah, in yeah. The distortion. If you turn the knob, that's yeah. when the devil and the demons can enter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we all know that, right? Yeah. But my, my circuit overseer had a copy of it, and it was one song I particularly loved. He just, you know, he would sing it when he, when he saw me, you know. So, so I don't know. But, uh, but I, I remember getting comments from people apparently JWs that would say, you know, like they'd see that I was at a website or that I was on eBay or whatever. And they'd say, does your, do your elders know you're doing this? Yeah. Okay. That's a funny thing, right? Like yeah. when I would, there was a time where Jehovah's Witnesses had a website called JW media, JW media.org. And it had like, yes, yes, it was, it was their official website. And I would tell witnesses like, Oh, have you been to the Jehovah's witness website? And they're like, that's apostate. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like their religion has a website. And they're like, you're insane. You can't stop talking. I can't listen to this. You're an apostate. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is what they This is our faith. And they're like, no, the webs, the internet is evil. And now they worship a URL and they only talk about their website. <laughs> right. Like yeah. Bowing down to a website. Yeah. It's so great. It, it is like, how, how do you have that switch? Because there was a time where even social media, they would be like, <laughs> now, brothers and sisters, we've heard people have Facebook accounts and they wouldn't even say they're like face space and my book. You know, they're trying to like, yeah. be, <laughs> like, we can't actually say that the website is bad or you can't use it, but we're going to like get, you, you know, you can't <laughs> use those. It's off limits. And now it's like, right. they have, they have 50,000, hundred thousand people in like their fa- special Facebook groups and they're like hashtag living the best life ever or something. Yeah. 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 It's like, like it how amazing. do they go to do the exact opposite of what they railed against? The internet was evil. And, and like yeah. you having and any kind of presence on the internet was why you got banned. It's like so ridiculous now to think about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I tell you, I I was at Bethel for a while in the eighties, and uh, I heard in the that computer. Barbara department. Anderson was telling me that you had a presence there, and she, you met her there. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. She she came. I get. Well, I went in eighty one, and I think she came in eighty two or eighty three or something like that. Okay. I remember seeing her and her husband, and I think the thing that really popped out of my mind was somehow I knew like very quickly that their two sons were their two sons. I I knew those guys a little better than I knew Barbara and Joe, you know, had lunch with them once in a while. And, um, and I was like, Oh, wow. I mean, I don't know too many. I can only think of two other examples. There are probably more that of a fam, an actual family at Bethel. I I don't mean just temporary workers or working on a construction project. I mean, back in those days you were either Bethelite or you're, you're not there. There was no commuters, you know? So, uh, yeah. So that was interesting. And, and yeah, so we overlapped a bit. Um, I know her a lot better now than I did then. Yeah. I mean, it, it was sort of just, you know, cause you run into people all the time at Bethel. It doesn't necessarily mean you know everybody like, you know, your best friends, but, um, yeah, I had no idea what she was up to, <laughs> you know? Um, I, like, I didn't know she worked on, on the awake magazine. I didn't even know that. Um, <laughs> I, I knew a lot of the people that she worked with, like Cyril Wallacino and Harry Poloyan, and, um, you know, a lot of people in the writing department. But uh, anyway, propaganda machine. Yeah. <laughs> I actually met Barbara. We've been emailing this year for the first time. And then during this campaign this month, she's she reached out to me and she she has a special program on the six screens that she does every other week. So mm-hmm. she has like a two hour window and she she boot bumped an uh, important interview on human rights that she was doing in Kazakhstan, which is super interesting to have us on to talk about this campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, the Saturday before the Be Free 23 thing um, in D.C. 
Um, so that was really cool because I got to meet her and then she bumped Joe on. She's like, Joe, you got to come on. There's this cool like filmmaker and project that's happening. And we got a couple of the authors in on, but it was cool to like, she's, she's so cool. I like, and she also she wrote, yeah. she wrote a book. So I'm like excited to like work with her and get to yeah, know her yeah. more. Yeah. She's telling me, she's like, you got to get on Gary Alt's show. And then she shared the interview that you did with us. Um, on yeah, her yeah, yeah. Page, which is really wrong, cool. Yeah. She's like, yeah, Gary used to do music things at Bethel. So I want to, yeah. I want to know a little bit more about that. Okay. You were just talking about Bethel. So, I mean, talk to what you were going to say. You're yeah. in the, what department were you in? I, I was in the computer department. Oh, yeah. I guess the point I was going to make just real quick is that um, I learned, uh, I don't know, right around the time that I started at, you know, went to Bethel, that there was a lot of um, brushback within the Beth, within the governing body and within Bethel in, in general, especially the top brass, so like factory overseers, about the whole idea of using a computer for anything. Because they felt oh, wow. it was like, well, you know how at Bethel they they used to they they had like generators they they had it set up so that if they needed to pull a switch they could be completely independent and not dependent upon the electric company, not dependent upon anybody for the which wow. which is absurd. I mean, obviously you still have to be incorporated and in, they're like a post apocalyptic ready printing. Yeah, company. yeah, I don't know. Man. It's so uh, interesting. Whatever. Yeah, but that was their idea. Is that we no we we went we st- we went independent with printing back in the twenties or whatever it was, and everybody said we're crazy, and we did it, and, and so we don't need the world for anything. So with computers, well, well, you know, they got an IBM computer, they leased it, and uh, they ended up getting a bunch of IBM computers. And it was really Grant Suter was the brains behind that. He was a governing body member he, that this just realized we need to do this, you know. And they couldn't have, you know, they the year that I w- I've completed the shipping and inventory system. They made the realization once it was implemented that they never, ever, ever would have gotten all the yearbooks and all the bound volumes and all that stuff out if it wasn't for the system because they'd grown too big already. So all the people that were like, you know, denying reality and saying, no, we can't use computers. It's too much dependence upon the world. They were proved wrong, you know. Yeah. But it's well, so also if you, if you want to do that, it's like go full Amish, like don't live in the biggest city on the planet with, you know, across from Manhattan, across the water. Right. Like they're, right. they put themselves right. there for a specific reason. And it wasn't to be away from society. It was to right. be right. closer to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why Russell moved them there. Absolutely. Yeah. Because they because that's where they wanted. To, I mean, it was really important in those days to be near a shipping port. So, yeah. Anyway. But uh, but as far as music at Bethel, I mean, I was still you know, doing music and everything and um, just not being a, I, I learned very early on that you, you should, it's not wise to make your business, everybody else's business, like, like make them not, you know, knowledgeable about what you're doing. It doesn't mean you're hiding things or anything, which is what actually happens a lot, but it just means, I'll just give you an example. Back when I was still, um, before I went to Bethel, I, I remember I had a Jimi Hendrix Speaking of Jimi Hendrix, I had a Jimi Hendrix album on my turntable, and and uh, it, well, it was actually the Monterey album, the Monterey okay. Pop Festival album, oh, like live. Yeah, so one side was all Jimi Hendrix, the other side was Otis Redding, oh. and of course, I played. I love Otis Redding, but I mean, I was playing the Jimi Hendrix side almost constantly. So this elder happens to come over, for, and I don't remember why exactly, but he came comes over to my apartment and he says, "Oh, uh, uh, what?" play me play me some of the music you listen to you know and i kind of was, was like it just seemed disingenuous to me like what the heck does he want he goes and i said i said well what do you want me to play said, oh just whatever you have on there let's just th- listen to that i said oh, okay i said well let me just flip it over i'll play the b-side he goes no no i'll play those i was like no i'll play the b-. so i played otis redding and it's like you know he's like oh that's okay 
I, I think that he must have heard something from somebody that Gary plays really loud acid rock, which is a ridiculous term. It's the home release didn't exist, you know. I mean, Jimi Hendrix was not acid rock, but that's everybody, everybody always thought it was. But, um, yeah, so that was – so anyway, I learned early on to not be super – you know, even with regard to, like, sex between you and your wife, the things that you do, if it's not crazy or – or harmful or, or, you know, degrading or, or anything like that. There's certain things that are, that are verboten. So don't, mm-hmm. w- don't go broadcasting this pe- to people in the service group. It's just, use your, use your <laughs> head, you know, like, so that people get in trouble for things. I'm just always amazed at the, that it even happens, you know, but so anyway, when I went to Bethel, um, I had, I had the same record collection with all the Jimi Hendrix and Jethro Tull and cream and, you know, all that, that horrible Santana, all that evil devil oriented stuff. And I, you know, I hear story. Well, this is around when backward masking had, had become an issue. You know that 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 was like a really big thing for a while. And I, I probably masking. had a couple of uh, yeah, yeah. That's what they call it. I forget which. I think it's backward masking is a legitimate right. technique, whereas back masking is. I, I I get them mixed up, but one of them is supposedly the devil has gotten into these records, and if you play them backwards, there are satanic messages in them. That was a really big thing for a while. There's, while yeah. I was at Bethel. And I just I realized this is the hokiest nonsense I ever heard. I don't even, you know, I'll argue about it all day long with somebody I trust. But other than that, I'm just not going to talk about it. So I remember I actually put like a little warning sign on my record collection, which was behind a a closed cabinet door, because I heard all these stories of housekeepers that and and I know that these are true because my wife was a housekeeper and a lot of our friends were that would actually turn people in. They they called told they called Bethel office and say. I was cleaning, you know, a brother's room in, in you know, Towers Building, 10th floor, and I found uh, a, you know, a Victoria's Secret catalog or, or uh, you know, it has nothing to do with music, but, or, you know, a, a, a record with a really questionable demonic looking cover. And the next thing you know, you'd be hauled into somebody's office. So I just put a sign on my record collection. It says, please do not touch. And, and if you're stupid enough to, to, to go ahead and go through my record collection, then shame on you. You know, I, I ask you not to touch it. It's my personal stuff. It's not out so that you need to clean it, you know? So I, you know, I, I, and, and then, then when they started the album burning stuff, like they had people actually throwing albums away in the dumpsters. Wow. I went through the dumpsters to see what, if there's anything. And I, I'll never forget. <laughs> I, got the, I got the Santana three album that way. It was like, yeah, I've never had that in my collection. I love Santana. You know, is it more or less demon possessed if it came out of a, occult members like post demon throwaway yeah moments. yeah <laughs> yeah but that's the way i always was i was like you know i don't, I don't believe a lot of the the, the stu- i always believe the doctrines but a lot of these implications you know about you know you, you can't do this you can't do that it's like you know like i went i went to concerts at churches not all the time but if it was a concert i wanted to see i don't care where it is what's the difference whether it's out at, at an, an amphitheater or it's in the basement of a church i, I mean what, what are you going to get the catholic cooties on you or something so anyway, that's my, that was my thing. But I got into the music at Bethel very early on because they have what they call Family Night, okay, um, which is an it's like a variety show that they put on, you know, by members of the family for the whole family. Yeah, and it's a committee with Dan Sudlick, who's one of the governing body members. He's one of the he's one of the people on the committee. And uh, so I started out the first time. Uh, a, a guy I worked with asked if he knew that I was a piano player and I, I played classical music mostly. And um, he wanted to do a four a four person eight hand two piano version of Franz Liszt's Second Hungarian Rhapsody. I said, "Yeah, wow. you know, absolutely, I, I love it." You know, so that's what I did. And from that point on, I was on every family night for the whole time I was there. 
playing piano. Every, oh, I played flute one time, just like a little brief part, but wow. I never acted in any of the skits. I was just playing the piano, you know? So I kept my hand in that way. I, did, I wasn't really playing guitar too much in those days because you really couldn't, you couldn't have an amp in your room. Wasn't even allowed. You, you could have a guitar in the closet, you know, but you couldn't have an amp or you couldn't use an amp, put it that way. Just um, for like after hours noise or something. Yeah, for any time, because it's either people are going to be sleeping or studying or, or it's during work time or whatever. You just you just couldn't use an amp. You weren't allowed to. You could have a guitar. But even then, I I know guys that would go into a stairwell or something and they play their guitar and sing because they had they I don't know their roommate couldn't take it or something. So it was kind of an oppressive environment in terms of, of music. I remember going down to um, what they call personal storage, which was in um, the 30 building, which is. You know, and it was the old Squibb building where uh, Gilead was um, back when they were still in Brooklyn. And that's where my personal storage was. And that's where I kept my amps. And I remember going down there with my with my Les Paul and I just ripped it to shreds. I was just wailing. You know, I'm playing not super, super loud, but loud enough that you could hear it all over the building, you know. And, you know, once in a while, somebody would walk by and say, hey, what are you doing? And I just say, yeah, I'm just playing a little bit, you know. So what is it? And they're just so foreign to them. They're like, what? Yeah, those, those sounds, music sounds strange. I'm like, yeah, well, it's kind of the blues, really. But, but you know, <laughs> You're a version shredding of metal. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, it was kind of before. I guess it was the days, I mean, early to mid 80s, I guess metal. Well, you know, it, it, Van Halen's yeah. and Def, Def Leppard started in the late 70s. But um, yeah. I, I guess that was early metal. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, because like my aunt and uncle, I'm not in my... Jehovah's Witness side on the other side, they were super into Van Halen, Def Leppard. They had all the 80s hair metal band posters. And my aunt was always, she's like 10 years older than me, so like a bigger sister in a way. And she's like, check out the doors, check out this album, check out that record. And then it was like, that was the hardest, most badass thing in the world was 80s hair metal. But like looking back now, it's like, well, they were actually singing a lot of like love ballads and yeah. like yeah. really catchy, smooth um licks and and choruses and sing-alongs and mostly they're just singing about love and partying which yeah. is all pretty benign stuff when it comes down to like what metal what people think of metal like now that those are just like classic rock songs or like people like oh it's like makes reminds me of my childhood because that's what my parents listen to you know but back then it was yeah. like so badass to like listen to oh them. yeah well everything's like that i mean i remember when they came out with the term soft rock and that basically was like james taylor and stuff like that which i always thought of as like americana acoustic swing singer songwriter mm -hmm. eventually it's I, I think like even led zeppelin is considered like i don't know soft rock now or something i'm not even sure what soft rock means it's like smooth it's like light jazz what does that even mean it's an oxymoron <laughs> you know it doesn't doesn't make sense uh, but uh yeah it's it's just kind of amazing how like i loved black sabbath in the 70s i absolutely loved black sabbath i was really into sabbath and deep purple and and led zeppelin great yeah, I still, I still love them. And, I, you know, I got rid the of all my break blew my mind. What was it? When the Levy Breaks blew my mind as a kid. I was always putting on that record. So we had, like, all Aerosmith yeah. and all Led Zeppelin vinyl growing up. And I would yeah. just be like, I would just put that on repeat. It was like, boom, the needle back. I want to listen to that. Yeah, yeah. Like a super big open sound. Like that. Yeah, and it was so, and I came to really love that anything was, like, plodding and, and just sort of muddy. And when the Levy Breaks, it was essentially a blues kind of song, but it's like, Dude, I mean, it's slow as hell. It just, it just has so much space in it to just, you know. But what happened was I eventually felt like I outgrew um, a lot of that stuff. I, I like I kept all my Cream records and, and Hendrix and 
the Beatles and, you know, a lot of this stuff, but I got rid of mountain and, and uh, Zeppelin. Mm, yeah. We had mountain too. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I loved mountain. And I, and I just, I don't know. I just felt like it wasn't it. The, like, I remember there was, there was a couple of Led Zeppelin songs in particular, like days, days and confuses when I always remember that I, when I listened to it, my, I would be like jumping out of my skin. I was like, I don't even know what to do. I am so turned on and, and motivated by this music to do what I don't know, but it, it just, it just, it just really thrilled me to listen to it. And one day I was listening and I'm like, and this is like after I had been baptized, probably I didn't make a conscious effort to weed out my collection of anything anybody considered demonic. I just was listening to it one day and I thought, I'm just not interested in this anymore. It just doesn't fit my personality anymore. Mm. So I got rid of it all. But years later, I got it back. And I don't remember when it was in the 90s or the the aughts or something like that. I said, that was a mistake. That was stupid. Owning art. Yeah, so now I've got everything. I've got I've got the live albums and you know all that stuff. But, I actually uh, had a similar thing, but my all my CDs I'd spent probably like, you know, I had like extra fifty dollars a month that I could spend on art or music, and I would buy CDs back in the nineties, and started in like yeah ninety one or something, uh, with like one of those CD send in the mail things, um, and and then like all my all my stuff, including all my burns and all my like MP three like my mixtapes, mix CDs, all got stolen out of my car. Um, we, weirdly, like it was the cousin of one of my best friends in my band who actually stole all of our stuff. And he found it like in a pile of like stolen goods from cars in like a family, a cousin's garage, like years later. And he's like, check it out. I got all your records back. Um, and I was like, just keep it as a nostalgic, but this is like 12 years later, but I ended up like, now I'm going to, like, I've been going to thrift stores the last like seven years. And like, every time I go in, I'm like, okay, CD section, that's the most important thing. I like find some gem yeah. that I used to own and I buy it again. So now I have like 150 CDs again of like the stuff I absolutely love. Cause it's actually yeah. that era was like the last era of music for like the nineties. People were actually had physical media and it's my generation. Who's like dumping that music. So I'm like, cause I got Spotify. I'm like, no, but the physical art is awesome. I want it. So like, I almost have a similar thing as you. Like, no, I went and bought. I went back and I bought all that art again, plus extra. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it's amazing though how it how it does change though. Like I mentioned, Black Sabbath, and and uh, it was like the heaviest, grungiest. Just like I shouldn't use the word grunge because that identifies a different era. But but the muddiest, just plodding, heavy, heavy, heavy thing I can imagine. I just couldn't. I, I would put the headphones on maximum volume, probably destroyed my hearing as a result. But, um, and I did, yeah, I just your faith? yeah, yeah. You to the devil, Gary. <laughs> no, 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 the, no, the, uh, the society took me to the devil actually. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, I, but it's, you know, now I listen to it and I'm, there's one Sabbath song that I still really think is great. And I, I always try to play live and I can never find anybody that knows it, but, but, um, it, for the most part, that stuff, it just amazes me like Ozzy Osbourne, the way he sings is so opposite of what became of especially death metal with the growlers, you know, um, he's, he's almost got like a sweet melodic voice compared to these guys that are just like really gritty, you know? And it, it just, and I think, I think this is what we thought was the heaviest thing imaginable back in the seventies, you know? Yeah. It's almost, it's almost like, like, is that, is that that light? What is that? Yeah. (laughs) So, now, what got me out was a different thing. I mean, it was um, no, they, they did it to me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I just got kind of um, uh, well. I was an elder for quite a while, and I saw uh, how goofy things were. I still believed all the doctrines one hundred percent. I mean, this is before the overlapping generation thing, but but I believed everything. Uh, but I always knew that the way we treat people and the way we 
try to force people to do things and control things. It's just, that's just not right. I, I just knew it wasn't right, you know? And, uh, but what it took me a really long time to realize is that is pretty much the way the organization wants it. I always thought that where I was, cause I moved to a congregation up in the, the upper Northwest regions of New Jersey. It's very, very redneck. And, um, I just thought, well, that's, this is the way they are. It's okay. You know, that's all right. Cause they're still in the truth, you know, but they just kind of different version of it. And my job is to work with them and, and see if we can kind of bring sanity to the thing. And I, I had so much brushback to use the word lightly. I mean, it was, it was a lot more than brushback. It was actually very difficult. Um, very, very emotionally wrenching point in my life. But, um, I finally realized after I wasn't an elder anymore, when I really started looking at the magazines that we're always kind of vague about certain things. Like people would say, oh, they, they told us to sell our stuff in, in 1975. Well, not, not exactly. But you can say that they did because of the way they would say, you know, uh, some brothers have sold their things and bought trailers and gone to Pioneer. Isn't that a fine example of a good way to use our time? So they never said that's what you should do, but they kind of did, you know, but they, they, they left it so it. that we... Yeah, they always they left it so they could always back off and say we never said that because they actually didn't, but they actually kind of did, you know. Anyway, I started to look at the magazines differently. I'd say, well, why is it that they're they're so worshipful of the governing body and the elders in this congregation, you know? And I thought it was anomalous. I thought it was just us, you know, maybe a few other yeah. congregations here and there. And I started to realize the more I looked at it that this is pretty much going on everywhere, where they're basically virtually worshiping the elders, not as individuals, but as a body, they become perfect basically. You know? mm -hmm. um, yeah, the governing body. About like the way that they present to the public is, is mm -hmm. one version of what they want right. the public to see. The way they present themselves to the people in the religion is a completely different thing. Right. And, and they, they do that, what you said in, in like mm -hmm. subtle effects or it's the conversation started and flowing and people like to tell stories and, and then it becomes this cultural norm within the in-group. And then they're like, that's not us. That's just the, how the people act or how individuals act. But they, they're engineering it. Um, and I think they're mm -hmm. conscious of that. And they, they, like if, they're, if they don't like it, they'll push it down. But if they, if they like it and it serves their purpose of keeping people in, they'll accept some cultural norm. Um, right. And it's hard to define yeah. what that is. And it's, it's easy for them to back out, like you said. But if it, if it exists, it's because they want it to exist. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the first time I saw that when I was more or less on the outside looking in. I mean, I was still going to all the meetings, mainly because of my kids. I want to set the example, you know, because I thought, you know, they have to go to the meetings and all that to, to have everlasting life. Right. Um, but I but I was pretty much on the outside looking in. And I'm just I'm just like hearing. I, I'd be like, did he just say that? Like, holy, like the guy in the platform, he just said that. I can't believe this. And I'd look at the magazine and I'd say. I realized that they it's written in such a way that there's a, there's a certain level of vagueness that allows for these other ideas and they never get corrected because of the white, what I call the white smoke um, factor, which is, you know, how the Catholic church uses the white smoke to indicate that a decision has been made about the new Pope. And we always railed against that, 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 that they're trying to, they're basically trying to convince everybody that God selected the Pope. And it's not exactly what they're doing. It's more just like a communication device, but but um, I mean, this is what my my very Catholic cousin tells like me. Anyway. Yeah, but but uh, that's what we'll change this episode to be called "The White Smoke Effect" by Gary Alt. Yeah, the White Smoke. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I like that. Tell him have to write an album. Or something your next like that. album. Yeah. Book, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but the but the the witness version of the White Smoke Effect is just the concept 
the teaching of all this stuff is due to Holy Spirit. The elders are appointed by Holy Spirit. The governing body works under God's Holy Spirit. You can't, if they ever let go of that or kind of like allow that to, to be, kind of, you know, to show chinks in the armor, they're going to have a big problem. They're gonna, everybody's going to lose respect for the elders and everything. So they never really, really discipline elders. They, I mean, you might hear stories once in a while about a congregation that was dissolved or an elder body that was all removed. You know, those are really, really rare. And there's happened specific to my elder body. Did it? Really? Those are the heavy yeah. metal guys, I guess, right? No, those are the guys in the next kingdom hall. Oh, okay, my okay. Guy. My guys, I think it was like they're all one. It was like two Bethlites and like a, I don't know, it's a, it's a whole, fa- it was like a family and married in family members. They were all, all related to each other through marriage. All the people that were in leadership and then the CEO came in or the CEO circuit overseer, the leader that travels and in, in basically is like the deacon uh, from a Catholic perspective, like came and wiped them out and put in new guys. Basically just got guys from like one different guy from a different congregation, one hour away. And then they would drive in every week to run the show because the other ones just vacated. Like they just went, mm-hmm. to a, they just stopped going or went to another kingdom. Hall. I don't even think they go anymore. Um, yeah. It was because yeah. I grew up with those guys. Those are like my parents' friends. Those are the people that my parents joined to become closer to. Um, Cause they were like family friends and to have them wiped out was like, what, what's happening here? Like, why would they, and we never heard why they left. We never got to talk yeah. to them. We never got to say their piece. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting how that happens. Yeah, yeah. But those are fairly, I mean, I've heard stories like that occasionally over the years. But for the most part, what I've observed is that um, individual elders are, are only disciplined for two reasons. One is if it's a disfellowshipping offense and they actually have to form a committee, then you have the usual just three three or four guys handle it. And if there's 12 elders on the body, they don't have to know the inner workings of the committee. They just accept the, the decision. So if the guy's disfellowship, he's not an elder anymore, obviously. Or if it's just a matter of like, yeah, this guy, like he's just making so many rules for the congregation. We can't stand it anymore. Something like that. It's, it's until, until it becomes an, anonymous with the circuit overseer involved, at least it was, what it was when I was in, nothing's going to happen. So you can have a guy up there saying that, um, I don't know, any, anything that, that uh, I always use the example of, um, of college education, how, we're not, we weren't allowed to go to college. In my experience, that's just not true. It really isn't. It never was true in the congregation where I started out in, but I mm-hmm. saw how it was true in certain areas. And yeah. if it's true, it's true. That's, that, that's what they're doing because they're not going to be called to task for it. No circuit overseer is going to go in there and say, well, we're kind of overstating what the magazine said. Let's kind of back off. And that, that just doesn't happen and, unless every elder on the body and this happened with a couple of guys that were on my elder body. That they, I saw that these guys were just outright liars, always manipulating, current, the, emo, using emotional manipulation and, and bullying and stuff like that. And I get nowhere with it. And it was years later that the entire elder body caught him in a lie, and they said, and they all agreed that yeah, he has to go. Until it's anon- anonymous. I, I keep saying anonymous. Unanimous is what I mean to say. Um, I, I've probably said anonymous 15 times, but until it's unanimous, including the circuit of you, nothing, nothing happens. So the way the magazines are written is, is, is this is why we're so happy. It's because our elders are like this. And what they really should be saying is if the elders would do this, this and that, wouldn't it be wonderful? So they portray them as perfect. And, and it's like, whatever they do, I guess that might be, must be Jehovah's direction, you know? So that's why these guys get away with making all kinds of rules up and it's different from this congregation to that care. So I call it the white smoke effect because 
if if they ever said like, yeah, well, this guy is kind of talking out of the side of his face, then they would blow the whole white smoke effect. It'd be like, where's the Holy Spirit and stuff? So that's what happens. So um, so I I just kind of got um, where I was on the outside looking in, and um, one thing led to the other. And me- meanwhile, I I started playing again. Uh, I mean, I had already started writing songs a lot and sending tapes out to um, publishers and. In fact, I made a I made a tape for Eric Clapton and I sent it to his um, um, publisher, his uh, his uh, producer at the time, Russ Teitelman, and I got a good and I, I asked permission first to send it because you can't you can't you know you're never going to be able to get something through to these guys if you don't get permission, and uh, and they liked it they they thought it was really good. The problem was that Eric wasn't working with Russ Teitelman anymore. His next album was like not even blues. It was just like I think his worst album ever. So it never went anywhere, but that's what I started out doing is, is, you know, writing songs wherever I could and recording them at home and sending them out. And then in the early two thousands, I started playing in bands again and they were, it was all witness bands. That was like the requirement. Like I didn't want yeah. any, any so-called worldly guys in the band, you know, that's an interesting thing, right? Like that's so similar to what we could captured in the movie that both Anthony yeah. was here and uh, I was doing is like, well, I mean, I think, and everyone in the movie, especially with Nuclear Gopher, like it was like the strict rule was you had to be a Jehovah's Witness to be involved in the music. Um, and if, yeah. and if you interact with someone who wasn't, it was kind of a pretty big taboo. You're not really supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not really sure what my thinking was at the time. But I know, of course, you know, because I was in bands as a youngster and I never did drugs. I never connected with music anyway. I did some drugs when I was very young. But, but the, most of my most of my teenage years, I never did drugs. And um, there was always somebody in the band that was off, you know, snorting coke or something. And we we're like, hey, where's where's Vinny? I mean, like, we're supposed to get back on. Like, where the heck is he? And, oh, I think he's off with Henry doing doing another line or something. You know, yeah, okay, whatever. So I just thought that that's never going to work. And unless you're all on the same page, like, pretty. I mean, being in a band is sort of like being in a marriage, where if you're not on the same page, and you never all are. You know, there's always a difference about how often we want to play out. Uh, what style of music do we want to do? Do we want to do covers or, or originals or whatever? You know, there's all kinds of, yeah. Um, and you try to do like a sort of a loose that democracy, I suppose. But, um, but the yeah, fact is democracy work in music is a fun conversation. There's a need to be. A yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think dictatorships are probably, probably a little bit more effective if you have somebody that's a strong leader and, and you, and everybody likes them, you know? Yeah. But uh, now I always looked at it as like everybody should have veto power. Everybody in the band, I don't care who you are, you should be able to say, "I, I just am not going to do this song." Period. I, I could, I'll, I'll be in the bathroom if you want me, you know, but I, I'm not doing this song. And, and I, I think the whole band should respect that, you know. But, but you know, apart from that, it's like, well, if four out of five want to do this or that, and I'm not crazy about it, I can, I can kind of, you know, yield a little bit. That's okay. But, uh, but anyway, I started in the, in the bands, and it was all old JWs. And I don't remember the other reasons why I, I remember at one point we needed a new drummer and somebody recommended this young guy from a, a nearby congregation. I'd never heard of him before early twenties. And, um, and, and I heard a rumor that he was sort of like, you know, on the fringes, sort of like, you know, like maybe called double lifer. I was like, I don't, yeah. I don't want that. I don't want that kind of stuff in the band, you know? So I actually, we rearranged the time. I think it was me and this fellow, Larry, who was the bass player. He's sort of the leader of the band, Larry. And he was a singer and a bass player. And uh, we met this guy in, in the diner up in his town. And I just, I just said, so, um, how often you, 
<laughs> you go out and service and you know i'm actually asking me these stupid stupid questions in all seriousness you know <laughs> and i just got enough to feel to realize that yeah he's he's got enough maturity that's okay you know he ended up being a great guy and a really good drummer very good drummer and he's he on any of the songs you sent me no no he's not on okay. any of them no no there's hardly anybody uh, but his sister who is now my daughter-in-law she married my son who at one point, the band became um, this fellow on drums who was like early 20s. My son, who was also early 20s, he, he started out as a drummer but moved up to guitar once the real drummer came along. And then and then the girl that was this fellow's, the drummer's sister, who eventually became my son's wife. So they were all like in their early 20s. And I'm like, I don't know, 50 or something. And the bass player is like you know, mid to late 40s. So so we, we kind of changed our, our uh, material to with a lot of 90s and aught stuff. You know, we played Foo Fighters and and you know mm -hmm. stuff. We Coheed and Cambria. We we play a lot of pretty. pretty That's cool a really stuff. high vocal range to do Coheed and Cambria. <laughs> I'm so yeah. blown away by. The, yeah, the bass player like, Larry was really into Rush. You know, when I was little, was Coheed yeah. and Cambria is like the new Rush. You know, kind of similar sure. to getting these vocals. Um, but yeah, he loved that stuff. He could sing. I liked his voice best when he was singing in a, in a lower range and he was just being soft. But when he did rock and roll he was like axel he kind of sounded like axel rose really actually um but but anyway so three-fifths of the band were these young young punks you know and um yeah no, we had no problems with uh jehovah's with, witness punks is that what we're talking yeah, about yeah yeah cool <laughs> yeah in a way that's what i would describe myself as and maybe like half the people in the nuclear gopher scene might even like lean that direction although they don't really ryan doesn't love that word because they were like psych rockers um, how yeah. would you feel about that, Anthony? What the the label? What what were we calling it? No, like Jehovah's Witness punks. <laughs> oh that, yeah, you're just I mean, being punks. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like who who would fit that mold out of the the group? Really? I guess just because we were maybe Cindy, Cindy, yeah, and maybe SP three a bit because like that band. Okay. And then my stuff is oh, very sure. much in that vein, like alternative and like skate punk influenced stuff alternative music from the 90s and skate punk like i was yeah. i was a deeply into fat rec chords by fat mike from no effects and no effects and then like punkorama like that whole those those record labels and like those universes of punk rock it was pretty global too like one of my one of the bands in that world is swedish and um a lot of socal stuff but all over the country the queers were a huge thing in my world so like i was going to punk shows like from 16 17 18 19 that was like that was like my whole thing I never got into punk really. Like I was, I liked like some of the the Riot Girl stuff that was coming out. I guess that was yeah. that was punk punkish. I was into that. Yeah, Rebecca and I played loud music. I kind of look back at the, the stuff we played at that October Ridge. Um, like the the lyrics to our music and the tone of our music was not very uh, Osmond. Like a lot of the Nuclear Gopher stuff was. It was kind of very happy and fun <laughs> hmm. it's an interesting concept though like the punks as you call them i mean it's almost like punk is a kind of music and a genre but it's also maybe even more an ethos or like an attitude towards society and that's how i that's think true. of punk more than anything but yeah yeah i want to show off some of your music here i know you're you can dive in keep going with your story i don't want to interrupt too much but like i also like wanted to show off some stuff is it, i pulled up falling down you want to go with okay. that one or is there another one that like hits for you, that you oh that's a good one um do you want me to tell you about it or 
Yeah, let me, let's just like, like push play for a minute and then okay. um, we'll pull the volume down and you can talk over it. But It's not that I expected you to be around to catch me if I'm falling. Unfortunately, like sound quality is a bit missed on. Um, yeah, yeah, yard. that's right. Yeah, could you give us a little background to this? Yeah, um, well, there's several things about it. Uh, one, it, it's on the album Tribute. You can see it's, it's got the Michelangelo painting kind of changed. And that the idea behind that is I'm the stick man. And the idea behind the album is that it's about 30 different artists, whether they're singers, musicians, uh, uh, instrumentalists, or, or writers that have most influenced me. Okay. And I feel like as much as I imitate these people, and I'm a kind of a product of all of it combined, you know, I'm just a stick man. I can't hope to do, I can't hope to really be Jimi Hendrix, you know, for example. So that's why I had, it's like, you know, God's creation of Adam is I'm just the stick man. But this song was actually a, a tribute to John Lennon. Um, so musically, it's kind of like the, the, I don't know, around 1965 Beatles sound, I guess. But yeah. um, this is one of those songs that I wrote while I was still in that reflected my growing negative experience with the with the JWs, even though it would be like, geez, I don't know, like 20 years until I start, start my journey out, maybe 15 years, I don't know. But um, the, the idea, it, it's basically, uh, the, the idea behind it is that I, I was always there to help you, and now I'm just I'm just crying. I, I actually had made a suicide attempt back in the mid '90s, and it was because I, I had just stepped down as an elder. And about a year later, all these things converged, and the, the emotional pain became so intense because of all the things that were happening. I mean, everybody treated me so differently. All of a sudden, it was like no forgiveness for anything. And I even the, the last thing I had to figure out was how in the world can I even imagine that my three kids will be better off if I'm gone? Because that's what I had to convince myself was that everybody would be better off if I'm gone. My wife, the whole congregation, everybody. My kids were like the last part of the, the, the formula. And I just couldn't figure out how is it going to be good for them? It's not it's going to be horrible. I don't know how, but so one day I just I just put it out of my mind and I just I just did it. I just tried to, to end my life. And it would have worked had my wife not come home from work early. But um, but anyway, it took me years. After that, I didn't do music at all for like five years. I was just like in such a numb state of no emotion. I didn't feel anger. I didn't feel sadness, happiness, joy. I felt nothing about anything. Wow. And it was years later that I just got this idea to write this song, probably from a melody I heard. And I, I don't know where the words falling down came from, but... Um, but it's basically about that experience that, you know, yeah, I was always there when when you needed help. And I don't mean you or you. I just mean anybody in general. And now it's like I'm screaming. I am in so much pain and nobody gives a shit. And, just, and that's the way it is with the JWs, unless it's going to affect the kingdom or the the organization or God's name or the congregation. Nobody gives a crap. The individual doesn't mean anything. Well, it took me really long to figure that out. But meanwhile, I wrote this song called Falling Down. That's what it's all about. It's just... Um, you know, I, I need some help once in a while too. I don't. You don't know it because I was always Mr. Strong, Mr. Broad Shoulders, and and I never really cried about anything. And said, "Please help me." But now, now I, I don't know what I need, but I need something, and and there's nobody there. You know, so so I, of, I guess, I'm sorry. The act of writing the song affected how 
you started to think about what was going on in your life at that time? Did it like help you understand somehow that you need um, to do something or change something? That's a good question. Um, I think it be, I think it might've helped me to kind of stay in in a way because I was very, very stubborn. I had what we call um, malignant optimism uh, where you always think <laughs> this something's going to improve. Like this is the best this can possibly be right now, but it will be better, better in the future, even if there's no reason to think so. And I think that was part of what convinced me is because it's an emotional outlet and it's like still nobody's listening. They'll hear the song and they'll like, it's not me singing, by the way, it's my friend Jason is singing. Um, and they'll listen to it and think, you know, I, yeah, that was nice, but nobody, I, there was one person, one person who was a really good friend of mine that said, wow, man, it sounds like you finally wrote a song about your, your experience five years ago. And I was like, well, not really. But then I thought about it and I said, he's right. I wasn't consciously trying to write about anything. I was just trying to do a song based on a melody that I, that I mm. had in my head. And based on that, I, I do a lot of stuff based on bass lines and drum beats. And I don't know if you, I don't know if you heard that, that drum beat in the beginning where it's like just an open hi-hat. It, it creates a bit of tension. And then all of a sudden it, it releases with a snare drum. And then it just goes to a regular drum beat. So I just, that's, that was the basis for the song. And I just had to write. And I guess it was years later that I started to put it together and realize that, wow, that was really me. Because I, I, I don't think I, like I said, I was emotionally numb for years after that experience. And I don't think I had it in me to write something personal or maybe I didn't have it in me to write something personal and realize that I'm writing something personal. I'm just writing. It's like stream of consciousness kind of thing. Yeah. So, so yeah, I don't know. I think it helped in hindsight. It helped. Well, I listen to it differently now. I mean, I wrote it when I was still in, it was not on one of the, my JW. I, I gave up on that after the third album, by the way, I never did a, you know, the JW thing again. I just realized I got to write for the, for whatever audience wants to listen to this stuff. But, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I, I guess a, a little bit at a time I realized, um, I mean, later on I did, I did several songs when I was still in, they were outright direct protests, complete protests about how crazy the organization is getting to be, especially the elder bodies in my local experience, you know, um, but that song falling down is not, I don't think it's one of them. I think it, if it's what, if that's what it is, it just was an accident probably. It's so interesting. I listened though, to your song, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, uh, your your song whatever just felt like it had kind of uh, religious tension in it. Oh yeah, yeah. It's I call it an angry song. Yeah, it, it's not my best song. I knew it at the time, but I just was I was just finishing the album, not for sale to minors, and I thought I needed one more song, and I just did a John Lennon kind of like a primal scream therapy. Well, I didn't do the primal scream in it, but that that minimalist kind of a thing he had going on in the early Plastic Ono days. And it was just, I always think of one elder in particular that used, was driving me out of my mind. It was absolute, absolute, it was torture. It, and I don't mean, I'm not using that word hyperbolically or, or dramatically. It was actual torture, spiritual and, and emotional torture that, that he was uh, putting on me, him and, and one of his associates. And I always think, and I was really writing about him. It's like, you know, you, you just, you just think, you know, I'm not good enough for this. I'm not good enough for that. Whatever. I don't really care what you think. <laughs> Uh, and there's a line in there that's that you can't really hear. Um, you, you can't really hear because I kind of mumble it. But it's you. You think cardboard's the way. Well, that's okay with me. In other words, you think being a cardboard caricature of an actual human being that's always stoic and doesn't smile and this is businesslike and this is what we call Christ-like. You think that's what everybody in the new system's going to be like? Okay, fine. But and, and then the other line is someday you'll wake up to find 
you're not what he had in mind. In other words, you'll wake up to find that you're not what God had in mind when he created humans. You know, it was so I was just really, really pissed off when I wrote it. And it's not um, musically. I don't think it's I'm not I'm just saying it's not my best song. But I, I stand by it because it's an expression of of angst that I, I think the music had to be as simple as possible. Just let the let the lyrics take it, you know. Let's listen to it. Yeah, sure. Let me know when to pause it or if you want to just start talking if you want to talk about it. Can you hear that? Yeah. the feedback <laughs> i like it has that space of uh, yeah that open space you're talking about yeah and I, honestly a lot of these songs i i probably i probably spent more time on the drum track than anything else and the drum track sounds, the sounds like nothing i mean it sounds like nothing all it is is a pop 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 but it actually it changes from verse to verse and i wanted it like as simple and minimalistic as possible because it's just anger i just want everybody to know that this this is ridiculous you know so yep that's pretty much what it's about cool it reminds me of um i started going through my journals because i want to write like a memoir self-help type thing using my like when i was a jehovah's witness struggling with the cognitive dissonance of being in this weird thing that i don't really agree with or feel comfortable with but also being in music and trying to express myself and i have all these lyrics i was writing to songs i never made but like poems and lyrics of this kind of thing like you think this you think that you're attacking me and it's just like me railing against some elder who said some crazy thing to me yeah yeah. it like really resonates with me and i'm, I'm actually curious about because i want to put like a soundtrack to this book i want to write okay this could be a, a good song to put in there for a song yeah. that i didn't write but like similar vein of like the similar kind of um ups, uh, frustrations right 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 cool. yeah what's interesting is that of course we change over time like i don't really care about you know what these guys did it's like 30 20 years whatever the heck it was like whatever I, you know i'm done um and i kind of pity him in a way and i th- and actually the guys that like were on my committee that just disfellowship me i actually i'm thankful that they just made that decision because i never would have done it i would have i'd probably still be in miserable as could be so you know it's part of life and, and it's who i am so I'm, I'm like whatever but um but it's interesting how a song is um it, it's always gonna you know especially if you've recorded it and it's available on the market it's always there the way you created it but the meaning can ch- kind of change over time you know and i found that with some songs that i wrote that were bible influenced actually they were influenced by my my jw beliefs that i'm like well what do i do now i mean do i forget i ever wrote it 
or or can I just sort of change the meaning in my mind or even maybe rewrite the words? But usually I just sort of change the meaning in my mind. Um, I'll, 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 I'll just give you an example. Not that I want you to play this one, but there's uh, an example of one song called um, Old Friends that um, that I wrote years ago. And it was about my friends at the time that I considered my core friends. And this is when I was really struggling with the JWs in general. But these are my core friends that I could count on for, you know, expressing anything, asking questions, you know, depending, you know, leaning on them. And, and, uh, and then they, they were the first ones to drop me before I was even to fellowship. They were the first ones to drop me when they heard a rumor that my, my uh, ex-wife made up. And I thought, well, I don't really have any old friends that I'm interested in anymore, you know? So years later I pulled it out of my butt (laughs) because I actually, I was going to a, 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 uh, not a funeral, but like a, a little, gathering i don't know like a little memorial service for a friend that died and i and i wanted to sing that and i thought you know well somebody that was a good friend of mine from the radio station i worked at said that well you know old friends don't have to be old friends it could be new friends that feel like old friends like people Mm -hmm. you've known for a couple of years and it's like wow i feel like i've known this guy for 40 years you know and so that's That's really good advice actually yeah so i didn't change a word of it i just changed the way i feel about it when i sing it and uh, and i changed the meaning of it so even that song, whatever, it's like I don't feel that angst anymore. I mean, I, what what do, I, what do I care about? The, the, I mean, I, they were just doing what they thought was the best way to do things, which still blows my mind that they thought they were right. But um, <laughs> right, you know. So it's just it's amazing. I, I don't know, and and I found that with uh, like I've I've been listening to um, Wesley David's stuff because I want to do an interview with him this coming cool. week. Or so. Oh yeah, you should talk about your channel that you took over and now that you run. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. That's an interview that's coming up that's involved in that bubble and how we actually met each other, right? Like you're an admin for Shane Metchin's old group in New Zealand, right? Right, right. Which is called Life After Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Um, so Shane started it, and he sort of bowed out at some point because it's just not consistent with with you know his goals in life anymore. He wants to kind of well, he's, move past it. He's doing a lot of activism right now on the legal side yeah. in New Zealand. So he's he's yeah. Like, focus on the activism and making change in the, on the legal human rights side of things and right. doing legal court battle interviews and stuff. It's like, he's doing important work, but he yeah, did yeah. a really cool thing that Ryan Sutter got involved in. And so did like a bunch of artists and musicians around the planet. It was like him and his daughter and his daughter's good friend, um, lifelong friend. They all got out of the witnesses and they did like a former witnesses music world tour. And they did it yeah. like for 24 hours or something crazy. Where yeah. they, they went to like a new time zone every hour with a new yeah. artist. It was co- so cool. I loved yeah. the concept so much. And Ryan played. Yeah, I, I, I participated in that. I was we living did. in Montana. Okay. The, yeah, I was in Montana at the time. And okay. she actually did a song with me. Um, Emma Jade, nice. his daughter, actually did a song, which which is completely XJW. It's just, it's. I mean, I, I very rarely write stuff about the JWs oh. or XJWs, right? Because it doesn't mean anything to me. But this is one I just, I, I heard something on the radio that kind of made me think of the... I don't know. There was sometimes I hear a, a song on the radio, like in, in the background at a restaurant or something like that. And I can't quite hear it. So I hear it wrong and it gives me an idea how to make it different. So I'm not trying to improve on their song. I'm just kind of taking the idea that I heard incorrectly. So that, that happened on the way, on the way home from work one day, I just wrote this song called wake up and Emma Jade sang it. So I was on that thing and, and I did my songs and then Emma did a song where 
I think I did a video of me like playing the guitar and the violin. I don't actually play violin, but I play, there's a violin solo and it's like pretended like I was playing the violin. And uh, and then she sang it live, I think, on that show. It was really, really cool. Cool experience. Yeah. So yeah, wake, wake up and it's Emma Jade is basically the name of the artist on it, but I'm kind of on there because CD Baby makes you put your name on there somewhere. So <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. Is there any other songs you wanted to hit? Because um, Anthony went through some of them and I did. I have them all queued up. I got Bleed For You, Spin, Never Ending, Always, Wake Up. Oh, you just mentioned Wake Up. Yeah, yeah. Back you can play that world. if you want. Yeah. Okay. Back in the Free World is an example of one that I just changed the meaning. Because it was... Yeah. Wake up Truth about the truth Unchain my mind Shake out Little triggers melting over time I'm free and I'm me Good enough to be More than I was led to believe Yeah, it's really on topic Like specifically yeah. about the exit, right? Yeah, yeah yeah and she was a, a pleasure to work with i mean you know she lives in new zealand i was living in montana so and i didn't even have a recording space really but i just needed something to put a guitar track down the rest you can do directly into the board yeah. and um and then she just i don't know what kind of setup she had but she just did the vocal track and emailed it to me and i mixed it in nice yeah and then i got a violinist to play the violin solo Where's the violinist at? Uh, it's probably coming up in a minute. No, I mean, where are they from? Oh, oh, he, he's his name is Ian Cameron, but he he calls himself efiddler.com. So that's the website, efiddler.com. And uh, yes, it's good to know about this guy. If you ever want a, a violin track, you just send him a um, a um, a MIDI file with what you want him to play, and cool. and he'll. And he does it, and he sends it back to you, and he's not expensive. Um, I've used him several times. He's just he's really good, easy to work with. So this came up last night. A woman, I believe, out of Australia. Um, her name's Kate Tempo. Have you heard of her? She's an expert. That sounds familiar. Musician. And she wrote me. She's like, hey, I'm looking for somebody who can do um, some tracks, music tracks remotely, and she wants to collaborate. She wants it to be an ex-Jehovah's Witness artist. And um, I thought of... Uh, there's this woman out in, I think, Virginia or North, I think North Carolina. Um, but you might be a great musician for this because you have a more well-rounded and you play a lot of different different instruments. She's looking for collaborations with ex-witnesses, and I think it's a really cool concept. Um, yeah, sure. So definitely connect to you. Yeah, I wonder if like, maybe this hub of Witness Underground and, and your project with, um, what's the, Moving On, is that the name of the channel again? Your channel? Oh, no, it was. Um, Life after Jehovah's Witnesses. Life after. That's right. Life after yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, our, our groups are so aligned with like your music background and like the idea of life after moving on um, mm -hmm. that like we can and, and, like we create like a music hub where like all the artists and musicians know that you can plug in and, and tap in and like ask for, hey, I have this track I'm working on. Anybody want to like help me on it? Kind of mm -hmm. um, collaborative openness and then make like real business deals where like you said, like this violinist, for example, he's great to work with and you thought he was affordable like obviously like your time and your art is worth something but like you can make those deals yourself within the community that we're kind of carving out of the world 
here. Right, right, right. Group. Yeah. It's a great thing. I mean, the, I mean, if I lived in New York City, I suppose it'd be a, a endless resources or Nashville or something like that. But like I'm li- living in South Carolina or North Carolina now. And um, and, and it's a nice music community. But I'm st- like, there's a song that I wrote several years ago uh, that has nothing to do with the JW experience. But it just was, you know, I, I immediately thought this is an Earth, Wind and Fire song. I, I need a complete horn section. I need a really cool singer with like a kind of a contralto kind of voice, hopefully like a male, probably I need, I need all this stuff. And I can't, I, when I lived in England, I was looking for it. I thought I found a singer and then it fell apart. Now where I'm living in North Carolina, I think I found a horn section, but I'm always, I'm always missing something. And I've never, I've just never gone into a studio and done. And I, I recorded the baseline, I guess at an actual studio. Um, but that's, I probably lost it by now, but where are yeah. You at North, where are you uh, at in North Carolina? Carolina? I'm sorry. I was going to ask where you were at in North Carolina. Yeah, Wilmington. Wilmington. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's got a pretty nice music scene. Um, I mean, when I first came here, I was I didn't know where I wanted to live when I came back from England. I had no idea. I just knew it probably should be the East Coast because my elderly parents live in the, around the middle of the East Coast. And um, my friend, a friend of mine said, why don't you come and stay with me and you can check it out. And I first thing I checked out was the music scene. I don't care about restaurants and laundromats and gas stations it's like whatever everybody's got that stuff i need to know if the music scene's good and yeah i, yeah. I went to a couple of open mics like right away and i i needed i found out what i needed to know i that's all i need to know i can live here you know um so yeah that's where i'm at I'm and i found to find, out I, oh. sorry go ahead no go ahead I, I was gonna say i found a, guy, a couple of guys at, at an open mic that i was really impressed with um and and uh, and and he liked what I did, which was strange to me because I thought what he did was a lot better than what I was doing. But um, I but uh, well, I, I brought an electric with me that night, and I just decided to do some Jimi Hendrix type of stuff that that I do. And uh, so it's sort of sort of not loud, but sort of distorted, you know. And and he thought it was great. I don't know, whatever. Okay, all right. But I thought what you did was great. So we're trying to get something together now. He, he's um, I don't know if I mentioned he's from Venezuela. And that's what it's interesting about it is that he's singing what sounded to me like I, I hate to use the word American because if he's from South America, he's from America, right? But when we say American, yeah, we usually original speak, America. It's, it's yeah, it's just I hate that. Yeah, we're expression. misusing the term in North in USA. Yes, yeah, to me is in, in, incredibly chauvinistic, but but uh, but but U.S. soul music is what I thought he was playing, but it's yeah. all with Spanish lyrics. I'm like, what the heck? I don't recognize the song. I don't think it's Otis Redding or Sam and Dave, but. But it sounds familiar, and I just was fascinated. So we're we're trying to get something together. We're looking for a bass player and a drummer, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I wasn't going to move here because I I could work anywhere, I could uh, find a bed anywhere. But I want I want a place where we can do some decent music. That's an important question about where I always tell people. I was I was in Asheville, wanna... North Carolina. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Oh, I keep coming in and out but i was in Asheville, north carolina and like there's a lot of people that played music but it was like the only music we can play is like stuff that tourists will give us money for so you know yeah. what do you play mm-hmm. oh, i play the washboard and the spoons which is cool but like it was it was just that kind of scene it's like what what, what can we play for tourists yeah, there's a woman if- in North Carolina I want to I want to share and shout out to and I can't remember her name for her artist name at the moment but it, she made a song that actually she moved from folk and she's an amazing folk artist in North Carolina XJW Mama something 
And she made a song that actually, if she moved to like full analog synthesizer for this new song, it's called Trauma Llama, Trauma Llama Ding Dong. Okay. <laughs> it's so funny. And it's, such a, it's actually a really great banger. Like I actually think it's hilarious and, and a good song, but she did a ton of stuff out there. And she just moved from, I think Asheville to like the coast. Um, we were talking a couple of months ago, so she's probably settling in, but since you're both, you're in that region, you need to like, definitely get in touch with her i'll, I'll connect yeah. you after and i'll put her yeah in that'd, be that'd be great that'd be great yeah yeah you just reminded me of something i'm not sure why but at some point uh I, if possible i'd like to talk a little bit about um the value of uh i don't want to say music therapy because it's it's you know i can't really say i've gone through music therapy but but how it's helped with neuroplasticity and, and, and things mm. like that you know yeah, how please, it's helped Go for mm-hmm. it. This is it. Oh, this you want me to go for it now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I I discovered this. I I just dis- I discovered this in earnest um, quite recently. I've always kind of knew that music helped me get out, partly because all of my music associates became fast friends. All these so-called worldly people that I already knew from the radio station, and now all of a sudden I was like tapping into them and spending more time with them, even sleeping over this one guy's house a bunch of times, and. Um, and that that helped me in in logistical ways, you know, in practical ways. But but also just keeping music in front of me all the time, I'm convinced helped me to um, be more flexible mentally, to accept new ideas and accept the fact that maybe my old ideas are not correct, or adapt to, adapt to to things. Um, and, and so the, the neuroplasticity, it, well, I had an experience a couple of years ago that was really very difficult. Um, I, it was actually a, a case of actual gaslighting and I didn't recognize it as that. It was more like just arguments that came out of nowhere that were about things that were just absurd, just like an unbelievably absurd accusations that couldn't possibly tr- be true in any universe. Like logistically, they were not even possible. And so information was disappearing and, and you know, things like that were happening. And um, there was one there was one day that I uh, I was convinced that I had lied about something. And I was like, why would I do that You know, to this person? It was so important to me. And I realized that um, it, it was because of, of a, a phone call that I said I had made in the morning that my phone didn't show I made the call. I said, wow. I don't know why that. It, and, it's a, and I wasn't allowed the time to figure out what the heck's going on. So fairly recently. Um, and also at, at work, there are times when my memory is not as good as I, I would hope it to be, you know, and, and uh, I, work, I have a job that requires a pretty good memory. And um, so uh, re- very recently, all of a sudden, I started to remember some things that I like. I remembered the thing with the phone call. It was because it was a conference call. It wasn't with the person that was a family member. It wasn't directly with them. It was a conference call with the financial company I was working with. and. Oh yeah, my phone did, but I, but I wasn't even allowed the space to figure out that, that that was what happened, you know? So it was this, so I was like really kind of losing my memory and losing my mind and, and start, I started to believe that I was this bad person that told this, this mammoth lie, you know? And, uh, so just recently it happened that I just realized that these memories are coming back and I'm making sense out of it. And I, and I, right around that time I did it, I, I started doing a piece on, um, neuroplasticity and how music can help that in, in ways that nothing else can even learning a new language won't do it the same way and um and then i thought like why if that's what's happening me with me what was different about this last year that was that, that i've never experienced before 
Well, that was a time when I was moving, I was living in England and I really had nothing to do most of the day. So I spent a lot of time with musical pursuits, going to jams and, and, um, uh, open mics and playing, doing busking and, and playing with this particular guy that was a, a harp and a harp player and a singer. And at one point I was going to a jazz jam and I've never really been good with jazz on the guitar. I could play it on the piano, but on the guitar, it's like a different thing. And I, and I, I was like not really fitting in well with what was going on. Cause it was kind of like, I was always relegated to like the bottom of the heap. Like the guys were just going to play the blues and it, it wasn't working, you know? So I decided to, uh, ask this young, young player. He was like in his early twenties or, or maybe mid twenties, like half my age. And, but he's a really good jazz player and a real humble guy. And which is to me very important. Um, and, uh, and he offered a guitar lesson. I said, sure. So I gave him the equivalent of, I guess about 40 bucks. And, and he, he gave me a, a guitar lesson and I learned things that I kind of already knew. I just didn't really realize I didn't, you know, know how to put a, a label on him, but he also taught me a lot of in one guitar lesson. He taught me at least three very key things that are really, really important for playing jazz mainly. And so from that point on, now I have to practice, you know, so I'm doing this new thing. It's not just playing the same old music I've always played. It's a new thought pattern. It's totally new stuff. And I'm playing jazz and I'm playing solo, and I still play these tunes and everything. And I really credit that for, um, the, the fact that I've had some memories that have just come back all of a sudden. And I mean, I mean like constructive memories that they, they might be happy or they might be difficult, but they're constructive in that it, it was it, like, I figured out the gaslighting thing and I was like, okay, I'm done with that. You know? So I, I think that music, and that's why I was really, really fascinated with your witness underground project and the whole nuclear gopher thing, because, and I, the main thing I was trying to figure out was like the timing of it all. And uh, in terms of timing in their individual lives with it, like, were they all witnesses trying to get out or just half in, half out? Or was it afterwards or whatever? And the answer is that it's all, all it's, it's all, all the above, above. depending on who you're talking yeah. about and when. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. And, and, and obviously their music has changed. It's not all like, especially if they've been out for a while, they're not continually writing songs about how miserable life was when they were JW. Even when they were in, they weren't necessarily writing songs about that. Which is which is typical of a of a, a person who's a, a you know a total person. They you, you're not your life isn't just about this latest breakup with a girl or something. Your life's about bigger things than that, you know. Um, and, and so I was just fascinated with that whole thing. I wish I wish I was around earlier and younger, maybe, so I could have participated in it. But um, I, I just see that as so so important, and I recommend it. And I, I, like I said, I did this whole piece on neuro, neuroplasticity, and it's not so much to tell people you got to take up the violin or something, or or take music theory lessons. You know, if you can, that's great. But but the point is, is to challenge yourself to new discoveries. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're the kind of person that said that says I never liked that Mozart stuff, I you know, well try it. You know, just try, just just mm-hmm. do it again and try it with an open mind and. Um, you, you don't have to like it. It's okay. But, or, or jazz. You know, there's people that'll say uh, that jazz is too crazy, whatever. Okay, okay. So in the video, I say, why don't you listen to Ella Fitzgerald and Joe Pass? That's not hard to listen to. It's songs, but it's jazz. And it's, you know, you'll, so I, I really think it just creates new neural pathways and, and reinforces uh, certain connections, neural connections. Do you think it has to and, do with uh, listening to the music or actually like writing, trying to make it, trying to replicate it, trying to make your own thing? 
I think it can be that. But um, what I talk about in, in the piece I did also is, is how actual music therapy uh, that I learned about from looking at the stories of uh, uh, what's her name, Gabby Giffords, who was a, a U.S. congressperson in Arizona, and she was shot in the, in the head by a, by a, well, it wasn't a stray bullet. It was somebody who was trying to kill people, I guess. Um, and it, it obviously destroyed part of her brain. I mean, I mean, it went in, the bullet went in, like, I don't know, somewhere near one of her eyes and went through the back of her skull and out the back. Wow. So obviously it destroyed part of her brain. And that doesn't, that doesn't fix itself. But with music therapy, because they found out that she had been a French horn player when she was younger, I don't know exactly what they did, but I think it has to do with listening to music and, and like becoming involved in it in some way, not just listening and saying, oh, this is great. This helps me sleep. It relaxes me. Or I like to dance to it. But some level of involvement, whether it's, um, I don't know, like shaking a tambourine when you hear a certain thing happen, that would be the simplest form, you know. Um, but uh, so I don't, I don't really know what the whole, the answer to your question is in a, in a complete yeah. way, um, because the the therapy that I've read about, I mean, they've used it not just on Gabby Giffords, but also on anybody that's got um, uh, like dementia, which could be because of a brain injury or could just be because of you know age and brain deterioration or or a specific disease or some, some something organic. Um, obviously, with people that are at that point of you know pretty serious damage and maybe have no musical background they're not going to try to teach them how to play you know beethoven's piano sonata they're they're just basically doing simple things like shake like hitting a wood block or whatever but but i don't really know I, what i say to people is if you really want um, to find out more about it do a google search on music therapy and find a therapist if you think it's going to help you or somebody, you know, it's, I feel like it's really interesting. And I think that's great advice to go. That's so fascinating. For go for it, Anthony. We have a delay. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I just think that's fascinating. I think Gary's encouraged me to um, pick up the guitar again and challenge myself to learn pop country. Something I yeah. totally need. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm not sure how it works. But um, I, I just know it does. Um, and it, like I said, it's not just listening to the, your favorite piece for the, the umpteenth time. It's doing something where you're engaged in, in a different way. You're listening to something different. Because um, otherwise, it's not going to do anything new in your brain, right? If yeah. you're just listening to something that puts you to sleep at night. It's so. a really interesting place, uh, rabbit hole to dive into. And I think that this is something that has been emerging for me out of the doing the news about what this project is and like why it's important. Is, is that there is something about processing trauma through creation of art that we don't directly talk about in the film. But now that we're like, well, what is this film and why does it exist and why was it important to make? Well, it was important for me to make it because I'm a musician and I always have been since I was like 14. And I played in multiple bands. And I, as soon as I left the religion, I went back to music. And when I went to Vietnam, mm -hmm. I would de deeply dove into music. And then I made a music film. And I was like, well, yeah, I should tell the story through music. That's a natural, obvious thing. Why did all these people make music and leave the religion? And then, like, how how did that help them on the way out? And and like, why are they still with us? And why you know, how, like, I think it helped them all land. And I feel like we need you're you're pointing on something really important. Which is we should probably talk to an expert and like go learn more about what this thing is, so we can help people replicate it because it worked for all of us, and we didn't even know about it. We just like it happened for us naturally or we we relied on the music we relied on the art and the creation process to 
to land, to heal, to process the trauma without even understanding really that that's what we were doing probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. In different forms too. Like Anthony went and did a lot of graphic novels and became an incredible graphic artist. And now he's working on documentaries with that as a piece of it, for example. And a lot of us made mu more music and I made documentaries and like that helped me out. So yeah, I, I think yeah. there's a lot here to like, we should explore as a community. And I think it's a cool topic to be able to introduce um, people, even if though we're not experts, like we'll go figure it out and become experts. And right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I, I think in my case, it it helped me to, uh, and, and I've always been this way, even when I was the most diehard JW, I could toe the party line. I always say I could be the biggest jackass of an elder if you want me to, because I, I know the, I know the rules. I can I can do it. But it, but for a lot of a lot of things, it's like no, that this is not a rule. We're not doing this. This is a human being, you know, like, for example, we're not going to have a committee meeting with this alcoholic and tell them that you got to stop drinking this minute or you're going to be disfellowship. You know, stupid, stupid things like that, that are just like, it's so obvious how stupid it is, but nobody can get that because they just know what the watchtower says, you know? So I think it, it always helped me, um, to, um, you know, question things that don't make sense because, because, the, the the party line, the, the Watchtower party line about music is that there is music that's upbuilding and there's music that's demonic. And there's like just two kinds of music, you know? And it's like, I always knew how dumb that was. It's like, you gotta be kidding me. And like, you can't, you know, always go back to Jimi Hendrix. This is music for crying out loud. And it's mainly blues music. It's nothing crazy. It's really, it really isn't, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I know he did drugs and he died of a drug overdose, but that, that's, that, that's not how it affected me. I never did drugs ever at a concert. I never listened to a record with my headphones on under the influence of anything. Well, I hope you so change it's like, that soon. Huh? I hope you change so, that soon. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it just helped me to realize that, you know, you can, you know, accept this body of Ooh. teaching, which I did, but you don't have to accept every little pre, you know, little, little, you know, subtext. Mm -hmm. And I think that helped me when I, um, I mean, I spent the first couple of years after I was, well, first it was this four years of my wife's story got out and I had no opportunity to, to defend myself and everybody just assumed that she's right. And, and I lost the association of virtually everybody, almost everybody. And I was not, I was not assassination against you. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because the people believe, yeah, people will believe anything. If you if you're at all the meetings, you're commenting, you're turning in a field service report, you're happy, you have people over for dinner, you do all the things a good little Christian should do, and you say that, yeah, this guy, I saw him smoking a cigarette. Well, I guess he was smoking a cigarette. You know, <clears throat> it, it's obvious because so and so said so. You know, and why would they lie? They would never. Why, tell would, why would they lie? Right, exactly. You know, so that so that's that's basically what happened. And then and then um, then I was then I got this fellowship, and it was two years after that. And I still believe that this is the truth, even though after I was this fellowship, I never went to another meeting Ouch. ever. Yeah, I mean, but I still believe this is the truth. And I and I was fine with that. I, I was actually happy to to think that all the world's problems are going to be solved pretty soon, or hopefully, I don't know if it's going to be within my lifetime or not, but <laughs> at some point, everything's going to be fine. It's terrific. I don't have to be there. I'm just happy to know that. So I, I was okay with believing it all. I just didn't really read the magazines or the Bible anymore. But when I when I first finally said it was uh, two years, I guess after the fellowship thing, and I, I had the time and the resources and the desire to start researching um, certain teachings and, and facts, and it took me no time at all. I, I mean, I didn't. 
Yeah, how does this process go? It's actually a really interesting topic that I love to get into because it's usually like, oh, one very specific thing, and it took me 10 minutes on Google. <laughs> what was your Right, right. right. Your yeah, exactly. And this is one of the things I think is what I was saying before that we started when I was talking about your interview with the um, – I forget. I'm sorry, but the, with the Mormon woman. I forget the name of the um, cult. Cult of Consciousness with Shalice. Cult. Right, right, right. Um, you, you, I think it was you making the point that that uh, part of your effort when you started to kind of you know, look like relook at certain things was that you wanted to prove that this is the truth or something like that, right? right? Yeah, like right. very biased look. It's not research. It's like I want to find information that corroborates what I've been told my whole right. life, and I'm and I'm very skeptical of. Let me go find that information. That's right. not how you do research. You, but go on. Right, right. Well, that's, that's kind of what I did. That's kind of what I did. And I remember I went to this um, book. Oh, geez, I forget the name of it. But it was one of the society's books that repl- it replaced the True Peace and Security book somewhere around the mid 80s or something like that. And I forget the name of it. But it had this appendix that was like two pages long in small type, like eight point type or something um, mm-hmm. that um, was all uh, references, um, you know, citations about about uh, not 1914 but about 607 about 607 being the year that uh what what supposedly happened in 607 that's when babylon uh, conquered jerusalem i think or is that when uh, the, you know, the Jew, uh the romans i think were outside of jerusalem or no that's way before the romans isn't it no Five, it was it was ba- and it's, it, had some, it, it, had, it had to do with ba- no yeah it was when babylon destroyed jerusalem that's right okay, yeah. and they went into exile because it was like Years later, that that Cyrus was the you know Persia was the new world power. So that, yeah, so it was so six oh seven was when the, the, the basically kingdom of Judah was demolished. You know, so um, so anyway, there were all these citations. Like there must have been forty or something like different citations and references that indicated that that um, Babylon's sacking of Jerusalem was about twenty years off of what Russell always thought it was that he based his chronology on. So therefore, they're obviously wrong about 1914. And I remember this going back to when the book first came out in the mid '80s, and I and I looked read it, and I thought, why why are they doing this? They're basically destroying their own point. But at the end, at the very end, they make this point that when secular references conflict with the Bible, we prefer to go with the Bible. And at the time, I thought, well, all right, okay, whatever, so I'm done. But now I'm looking at it just with more of an open mind. Again, trying to prove that the truth is the truth. But I was like, wait a minute. These None of these sources are contradicting the Bible. They're not talking about the Bible. They're, They're just talking about history. The only thing they're contradicting is, is the witnesses' interpretation of the Bible, which is subjective. I mean, that's their interpretation. It's nobody else's interpretation. So these, these sources are not contradicting. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. They are so wrong about 1914. What else are they wrong about? And it's again, I didn't approach any any subsequent doctrine with the attitude that I want to prove they're wrong. I wanted to prove that they were right because I thought, ah, well, all right. So let's just see what else we got in the bag here. But like one thing after the other. And I really think that it has to, had to do like it. it I, well, I'll put it this way. I didn't go through a mourning process that a lot of people go through when they discover that, oh, if they're wrong about all these doctrines, that must be that must mean they're wrong about the paradise. Now, what does that mean? That means I'm not going to see my mom again uh, like i always thought i would or, or I'm, I'm gonna have uh health you know these health problems i'm having are never gonna go away or uh, whatever 
and it, it, it you go through an intense period of mourning because it's the death of your belief system. I didn't do that. Didn't happen with me. I was just like, oh, okay, you know, I, I I'll figure this out at some point. What the real truth is, but right now, at least I know that this is not the truth. You know, um, I really think that it's my musical background that did that because that's that's what made you feel comfortable. Let, yeah, comfortable. yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. I never actually thought of that or heard of that before. That like the influence of of having a lifelong of like working with art and music mm-hmm. would soften the blow of having your entire worldview. Um, realizing that it's not true or not real or that you've been lied to or that everyone you know you know like that whole wow like the whole rug being pulled up from underneath you realization moment um that's fascinating what could you elaborate on that like why do you think that that helped i i just think that um my i mean i'm very much a left brain and right brain kind of person because i could be very analytical um you know i was a computer programmer for years which is a creative job but it's also a lot of logic which is left brain stuff i i think i just my hemispheres work together well or something uh, and i'm not sure why because we don't like deliberately make neuroplasticity happen but but when we do things like with music and and maybe language and other things it it's a it's a consequence of it and i i, I just think that it um it, it kind of created in me an open mind that, you, you know, I, I don't know, Scott, like, I, I don't know if that's the way I would have been anyway. I never know. Mm-hmm. Like I always say that, that the JWs taught me um, by example where I was, a lot of people would have a different experience than me, but they taught me how uh, respecting people of other races is just like common sense. It's like, we're all equal, you know, it's, mm-hmm. So, so getting along with people and, and not judging them, uh, I, I don't know if I would have, I might've come to those conclusions anyway, because of, again, because of music, because I mean, I, my earliest music memories are like the temptations and the Supremes and Smokey Robinson. I, I love thought, Smokey Robinson. We had a cassette yeah, I mean, with Smokey and I listened to it a hundred thousand times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just like, these are, I was just watching the temptations movie last night. In fact, with and Smokey was, is one of the characters. Um, and I just, even though I was taught a version of ignorance and hatred, um, ig- well, ignorance, fear, and hatred, it, it comes in that order. First, you're ignorant, then, then that leads, leads to fear, and then you hate what you fear. Um, mm. I was kind of taught that, you know, because I, live, I grew up in an all-white area, and it was still pretty segregated pretty much in, in New York in those days for different reasons than, than it is now. I mean, it's not so much segregated now, but it was different from like the South. You know, they, it was more because the realtors just wouldn't show houses in white neighborhoods to black people. It was that simple. They just kept them out. You know, but um, I, I just never, I never accepted those more mores. I just, I always thought I, I didn't know black people growing up until I, maybe a few people in high school because they kind of shipped them in from other like less privileged areas because we had some good tech programs and. They wanted to give good students an opportunity. So I got to know a couple, but it wasn't until I really um, became a witness that I really was exposed to the, to the African-American community. And I thought, I, I immediately thought this makes sense. These are good people. They're warm people were emotionally um, open and, and honest, you know? And I just thought, I don't know if that's all black people, but it's enough for me, I, you know? And I, I, I think it has to do with my earliest musical experiences because you look at Miles Davis and, and, you know, bird and, and all these people and they're just they're making great music and and it's like 
who cares what the color of their skin is? Who the hell cares? You know? And, and so I, I think that affected that area of my life, but I think it created an open mindedness that like uh, elsewhere in my community, I just didn't find it like that. Mm-hmm. And I just kept it to myself, I suppose. And it, it, I think that it, it also opened me up to new ideas in terms of maybe these things that I believe for like 40 years now is actually like 40 years. <laughs> and that's a, that's a lot of years to, to be completely convinced of something. And then all of a sudden say, let's peel back the onion and get rid of that. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I just think that's what it is. I think it's the neuroplasticity that we create that it, it becomes a natural thing to allow new pathways in your brain, brain to, um, to, uh, I mean, it also gets to, um, cognitive dissonance, which, yeah. It was kind of part of the thing I did. But cognitive dissonance, we usually think of it as the inability or unwillingness, like serial unwillingness, to uh, accept new ideas that conflict with the old ideas that are cherished or that right. we just believe. Well, it works both ways. It's also if we hear new things and we're accepting them because they're the complete opposite of what we believe all our life. But now we, we hate the organization that taught us that stuff. So therefore, everything they taught us. and you know, like, I mean, because there are some moral precepts that, that I think are good that, that the witness is a, a spouse. They say it. They might not always practice it or they, well, they yeah, only exactly. practice it in certain, within each other or something. Right, right. Exactly. But if you if you absorb those ideas and, and I, I see, I always thought that, that, we're, that we're, we were spot on even with morals. I mean, except for, you know, like I said before, things that happened in my bedroom, who, who the hell's business is that? I, I never accepted some of those ideas. But but uh, I'm just in terms of the way you should treat people. I saw a lot of things that were wrong. Yeah. But in general, I thought that like even the way women are treated in the organization, we all know now that it, it's just horrendous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. How, how, how uh, marginalized class citizens. In right. Right. Way. Yeah. But at the time I accepted the fact that, all right, they're not second class citizens. That's not, I wasn't thinking that, but they, but all right. So they're not supposed to be elders and things like that. I, I accepted all of that. Um, but at the same time, I, um, uh, you know, I, I kind of knew that we were kind of like a, a little bit on the fringe with it. Uh, are you still there, by the way? Yeah. Can you hear okay, me? Okay, because your, pic- your picture just went away. That's all right. Um, uh, but but I, I don't know. I guess I, I guess I'm going off on a tangent. But the point is that um, that e- e- I, I think it's possible to accept that body of doctrines and completely be completely close-minded about anything different, but still have that that openness in, in the back of your mind to accept new things when it's time to. And, and that includes, that includes not, not just, again, um, not just rejecting new information because it disagrees with the old, but rejecting new information that actually doesn't make sense and, 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 and not accepting it just because it disagrees with the old information. Sometimes it's like a, an intersection or the, or there's somewhere in the middle that's, that makes more sense. So, wow. I don't know. I, I, I think I think music has just always made me a thinker. You know, um, I don't know how else to explain it. <laughs> Sorry for the te- I have a technical difficulty at the moment. Okay. Um, All right. Actually, can you can you still hear me on the nice mic? Probably Yeah. So, thank you for sharing all of that. I think it's fascinating, and I want to dive more into it. Um, Anthony, do you have anything you wanted to say? Sorry, I left you backstage there for a minute. Oh, it was oh. fine. I had a walk. 
Um, yeah, just um, I'm so thankful and happy to hear Gary's Gary's story. Uh, learn more about his community that he's involved with, and and I'm really happy to learn that bit about uh, neuroplasticity and 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 the power of music and that. Uh, I think that's really awesome, and wanted to personally thank him for his generous gift of the violin to whomever's going to receive that. That's really amazing. Mm-hmm. So I hope that they can learn something new or if they already play the violin rock out. Yeah, I think I, I think I've got a picture of it here somewhere. I don't know where happened. It, it's over there somewhere. Any, uh, well, anyway, it's over on my couch, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. I kind of forgot about that. So I'm waiting to hear about it, but uh, yeah. Um, what so music do you listen to these days, or what, what's um, what's what's in heavy rotation at at your place uh, right now? Um, it just it just depends. I mean, there's basically two radio stations that I listen to. One is classical, and I find that classical stations nowadays are not constantly playing, you know, Beethoven's Fifth and Ravel's Bolero, you know, at infinitum. They're they're usually playing stuff that's probably there's a good reason why it was never as popular as those things, but it's good. And, you know, it's just composers you never heard of before. Um, a lot of American composers, because America's history with classical is not as impressive as uh, Western Europe and, and Russia. Um, I, I I don't know. Um, and then there's a there's a station they call the Penguin, which is kind of a, a lot of Americana. I, I guess I go off on binges. I just did a show this past weekend that was like the celebration of the 40th, 5th anniversary of the band's The Last Waltz. And I, so I played on a, a bunch of tunes and up in New Jersey. And so I was, I've been listening to the last waltz, like crazy, like the band and, and all those people, Joni Mitchell. And, uh, um, in terms of new artists, I, I'm not, well, some of the stuff that, that, um, Scott has told me about is what I've been listening to really. Um, and I, I find it, um, very refreshing because I think I really think, and I'm not trying to sound like an old fogey or something like that, but I really think that a lot of the new music I hear um, is just not interesting. It's it's uh, like the same chord progressions over and over again, like the one six four five or one six two five. Um, it, I, I can't I can't believe how many songs use that same chord progression. It just blows my mind. There's nothing about these songs that, and I'm talking about you know whatever pop music means today. Um, it's just, it's just not interesting. Now, what, like there's this one song by David or Wesley David that every time I listen to it, it's like, it's the first time I listen to it because it's, it's like, um, it's like hearing a joke for the 10th time. It's not funny after the second or third time, but you still like listening to it for some reason. But every time I listen to this song, I'm like that, that chord progression is so cool. It's a song, a song called, um, uh, half a glass half full, I think it's called. You that? Yeah, it's just got this really subtle one thing yeah. he does. It's got a really pretty me- melodic sound with with the way he's playing the chords and, and the, the harmony that he's got in, going on the, in the guitar. But then the, the so the song's in E, and, and when he goes to an A, which is a pretty standard chord in that key, he's playing. And this is going to I'm going to sound technical. I apologize to anybody that doesn't know what I'm talking about. But he plays an, an A augmented, which is just an A with an F instead of an E. Okay, whatever. So the fifth note is up a half tone higher, which creates a kind of dissonance that has to resolve somewhere. And you don't usually use the chord the way he did. But it it just it's it's so cool because the, the melody is is the F and the C sharp and but he's playing an E. 
Yeah, let's let's hear it. Can you hear that? That's, that's nice. It's nice harmony, right? Right there. That that is so cool. That's a really good song. Yeah. And then it just repeats. So nothing really changes, but I mean, the lyrics change, obviously. But right there. I mean, do you hear it? That's, it's so unusual. And it's like the first time I heard it, it was like it caught me by surprise. And I was like, what? And I've got a really good ear. I've got perfect pitch. I don't know if I have perfect pitch anymore, but I've got relative pitch. And I can I can hear something and say, yeah, he's playing a C sharp minor seven, whatever. But with that, I was like, I gotta, I gotta pull my guitar out and see, you know. Um, it, it's just, it, it's. Oh, I'll tell you another thing really quick. The other day at work, I got stuck the whole day listening to what what sounded like to me as like a Spotify created list of the worst of the seventies. It was just <laughs> off, just all kinds of junk. And most of the songs I'd never heard of before, but they sounded very 70s-ish. But they had no imaginativeness to them. The melodies were garbage. The corporate, it was just, I, I, well, you know, you can never say melody's garbage, but, but it wasn't doing anything for me. Every once in a while, I would hear a song where they threw in a weird chord change that didn't make any sense according to any kind of rules, which who cares about the rules, but... But it, it really seemed to me like they did it just for the sake of being different. Like, we don't want to just do a one, four, five for the hundred millionth time. Let's do something different. It was just for the sake of being different, but had no nothing satisfying about it. Yeah. I'm listening to this stuff all day and I'm, I'm losing my mind, you know. Now, when I hear this song by Wesley David, I'm just like, that is just a cool little chord change. I, I don't, I'll never get sick of it. Yeah. So he's amazing. So he, he's actually. A- so I'm just answering your question. What are you listening to? I, I like stuff that challenges me. That that's it's maybe a little different. There's a reason to listen to it. Um, it's interesting. It's a little different. I said that already, I guess. But not just for the sake of being different. Like let's throw in something that's totally incongruous just to throw them off, you know. Um, anyway, so that's that's kind of what I listen to is stuff like that. Um, I'm gonna find out where he did this graphic art. Like I actually hadn't seen so any I, music I have video t- for this. Yeah, yeah I, that's good. I, watch this either. Uh, I downloaded it and I listened to it in the car, basically. I have a two-part question for Gary to, mm-hmm. to wrap up my questions. Okay. So a two-part question for you, Gary. Um, who's your favorite Beatle, or who's the best Beatle, and why is it Ringo? <laughs> <laughs> you missed the op- No, you were here for the opening. He was talking about the Beatles. Actually, what's yeah. your laptop sitting on? <laughs> yeah, it's sitting on the Sergeant Pepper box set because I needed it to get it up a couple of inches. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> yeah, sorry guys, not that I mean to tread on on the holy ground, but yeah. Well, you're not serious. Do you, do you really want me to tell you who my favorite is? <laughs> or are you just joking? Obviously, I was joking, but um, no, the Beatles to me were uh, um, they're they're timeless. I mean, you know. Now you can listen to some of the really old songs and realize that, yeah, it just belongs in the 60s pretty much. But 
so much of what they did, like the whole Abbey Road album, it, it, it could have come out yesterday. It, it's just, um, I don't think there'll ever be another Beatles, really. Um, they, they just had such an incredible impact on the world in general. So you have a little bit more, is the, the younger generation is a little more likely to have never heard of them before. Once in a while you run across somebody, it's like, yeah, I've heard of them, but like, who are they, you know? But I tell you, when I worked in a shop, I worked in a charity shop in, in England for a while. And, um, and of course, that's where the Beatles are from. And and uh, we, we would put on certain music just for background. And I noticed that whenever I put it, there was one Beatles record. It was the one called One. It's like all their all their number one hits. When I put that record on, people would walk in just bopping around and singing. And I don't care if they're 16 years old or, or 60 years old. It, it just it just knocks me out and I'm playing, you know, the jam and whatever else we had available. We didn't have a lot of good stuff, but like, you know, like Bee Gees and um, I don't know, whatever else, like, you know, hits of the 80s or whatever. And, you know, whatever people are grooving to whatever extent they can. But when I put the Beatles on, it's like it's universal. Man. It just never stops. Um, they, they just know all these songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Great. I heard something recently that. Read, but... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I I am going to lose my music cred, but the way I got introduced to the Beatles is we had this video game rock band thing. Okay. And they had a disc that was just nothing but Beatles, and you played along on a plastic guitar and plastic yeah, drums. Yeah. That was my first exposure to the Beatles. So I'll just wow. admit that. But I, I really like some of the songs. That's cool. Yeah. Now, it's funny you mentioned the what you know who's your favorite why is it Ringo it's pretty funny because he's he's the probably the most maligned of, of them like everybody thinks yeah he's not a good drummer but um I'll defend him all day long he I mean for what they needed he was the perfect drummer there was nobody else that would have done it the same way and uh my like my I think the best drummer ever is, is I, I usually don't say the best anything when it comes to music because I don't See what it has to do with anything, but with a drum, with a with an instrument that's kind of technical, like dr- the drums, it's a little easier to kind of pigeonhole somebody and say they're great or better or whatever. I, I personally think that there's never ever going to be another Buddy Rich. He's just so amazing. He's like superhuman, or he was superhuman. So, but put put uh, Buddy Rich in the Beatles and see how that works. It'd be hopeless. They they, they wouldn't have had a hit, you know. Uh, you know, so it's all relative. But anyway. But on that tribute album I did, I did a tribute to each one of the individual people. We had a guy. Sorry. We had a guy in our in our Keenum Hall, con- our congregation. We had a guy in our congregation. His, his na- actual name was Richard Starkey, but we didn't call oh, him really? uh, Brother Ringo at all. Wow. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, I'm probably going to have to jump off the conversation because the, the internet here is kind of chopping out. But I just okay. wanted to uh, yeah. thank Gary again. And I really enjoyed this conversation and, and what you had to offer. So cheers, yeah. guys. Be yeah, good. we should. And if you people are watching this later, back this this thing we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, yeah. Anthony, Thanks, for showing up. Appreciate yeah. it. We're going to wrap up soon here. I was thinking about doing one more song of yours, Gary, to, okay. to close it down. And thanks, Anthony, for hopping in. Um, of the, I put up Bleed for You, but also okay. um, there's another song, which I like the title, the cover art of it. It's called Art of Survival. Um, spin is you have a preference for what when we close the episode on? Oh boy. Uh, well, I like bleed for you better. It's kind of, okay. it's a bit punkish, but it's got a lot of great harmonies. It's got sweet singing and stuff, but it's punkish and it's got a lot, a lot of guitar noise that you can't really detect, but 
I used like every effects pedal I had and made a big mess out of it. Okay. Deliberately. Um, but I, it's, uh, it, it, again, the, both of those songs were from when I was still in. Oh, wow. I, I'll tell you what spin is about basically. So that if you want to listen to it, you know, later, it's basically about how they spin everything. They just, you know, um, you know, they, they've got an answer from everything. It's, and it's not, it's, and a spin is basically a lie, you know? So it's just, I got really tired of the crap I was hearing from the elders, especially the guys that worked at Watchtower Farms. They'd come to us and say all this stuff. But anyway, um, the uh, bleep. Oh, you're going to play that? Okay. Well, all right. Can you uh, well, I was going to say bleep, bleep for you is basically based on two things. It's um, it, it's two two different ideas that so, somehow merged. Um, but it, it's uh, it, it was basically inspired by the torture that the elders were putting me through which we didn't really discuss, but in a nutshell, it was that they, it, I, I wasn't an elder anymore. And at one point I wanted to be again, it was like 10, 15 years later. And I was a ministerial servant and I asked them, what can I do to reach out? What can I do to qualify for something? And they gave me this oh, unbelievable BS answer. And they, 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 they eventually said um, that I was this and I was that it, they, it was just basically torture. So the song is all about like, when is this going to stop? But it's also about hey, I, I, again, it's 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 like I was there for you. You're you're my reason why I've been doing this all these years. Mm -hmm. So I'll let the phone speak for itself now. All right, we'll crank up the volume. Smoking hope High on a pipe dream Trying to get through Hanging on to End of the road For Oh, it's painful to see you cry. Don't wonder how I keep on going. It's knowing you are my wife. Gift of projection, reflection, 
of your That was really cool. Love all the layering in that one. There's a lot going on with that guitar sound. I've got it. Yeah. If I could ever play the isolated guitar track for you, you'd be amazed at how dirty and, and, and noisy <laughs> it is. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I was just using every effects box I had. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <I> <laughs> did, did that sound quality come through okay? I know StreamYard kind of garbles it. Yeah, yeah, it gets kind of flangy, but that's all right. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you can look at it, you're just playing from YouTube pretty much, right? Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. Look it up and play yeah. it. You know. Yeah, put the link so, in the chat um, if you can see that. But uh, it was like sound quality is yeah. better over there. Bleed for you. That was the last track by Gary Alt, and uh, I feel like we're doing a radio show, which is kind of fun. I've never actually done yeah, that. Yeah. It's been like a That's lifelong cool. dream of mine to do like a music radio show, and I guess I've created a space for that. Makes sense now. <laughs> um, yeah. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing so much. Yeah, uh, we did a double a double shift today with you, or we're two hours in. Wow. Uh, Okay. Yeah, but I wanted to uh, say thank you again for offering mm -hmm. to offering up a brand new violin to anyone who contributes over a hundred bucks. That's like a really beautiful offer, and yeah. for sharing so much of your music with the world and also your story, uh, it's really important. And and I I, I wish my dad could hear this episode, and he can because it's public, but he probably won't. But like yeah, you yeah. two have like the same music history background and love. Like you mentioned, like seven vinyls I grew up with because they were in his personal collection as a teenager, um, born in '54. So like I feel like. Like that would be amazing to have that kind of and like you went to Bethel, you did the whole thing, and you're like, this isn't working. Like he did, he's like on the track to becoming an elder, you know. Maybe he is an elder, I don't know. But like to to know that like music is the thing that like draws someone out, and also just to know that just it's just like they don't care about you. Like you're just a machine. Anyway, it's a beautiful story. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Is there any yeah, last yeah, words you wanted to share with everybody? Um, no, but I mean, this is this has been really cool for me because because. You know, is it about me and my story or is it about music or is it about both? I, mean, I never really talk about music in any of these things. And uh, it's already gone more positively than many of the interviews I've contributed to in the past because they tend to get bogged down in like how I got in, how I got out. And what do we hate about the Watchtower? And I'm not about that. You know, I'm not. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's all about love. It's not about hating people that hurt you. You know, it's it's right. uh, it's about recovery and moving forward in love. And I just think that music. um I don't think it affects everybody the same way. There's certain people that are, I mean, everybody likes music, including some of the people that do bad things in the world. But, but uh, I, I just think that if we kind of immerse ourselves in it, it can do so much healing. It can help in so many ways. So I appreciate the chance to get that message across. Yeah, I think that's very aligned. And one of the reasons why we originally connected this summer, um, having a conversation about like, how can we like work together and help put promote artists? So like, everyone I ever worked with, I'm sending them your way to, to get them onto your show and talk about their music. And Wesley David, as we highlighted, with his song is a great example. I'm excited for you to, to also be interviewing these artists. I think that's, that's like, create a network around the world of, of people who are 
almost doing the radio show thing. Like, check out this new artist. There's this awesome message that they're sharing. Yeah, yeah. You can get into the, the nuts and bolts of the music too, which I think I'm a music appreciator, but you're like a, a creator on a much deeper level than I ever, ever was, which is why I do visual arts and podcasting and not music at the moment. I love, I love okay. that side even more, but okay. yeah, for what you're offering, I think our messages are really aligned and I really appreciate you sharing your story. You went deep into yeah. the beast and now you're out to tell yeah. the story. <laughs> and it's interesting. I mean, since we met, I think I think one of the things I told you when we first started talking not the, not that long ago was that I was kind of trying to resurrect some of these regular uh, things that Scott Meekin or Meachin, I forget how you say it, but, but he Shane would do Meechan. with the, yeah. what did I say, Scott? Scott, did I say yeah, Scott. Scott. Yeah, Shane, I should mention Shane, I'm sorry. <laughs> Shout out to sorry, Shane. Shane. Um, but, you know, he was doing it reg- every week and it was so good. And I was like, I don't yeah. have time for this. He, he made me the admin and I'm like, I don't have time for this stuff. So I recently resurrected the idea of at least interviewing, maybe maybe I'll interview authors. And I did a couple. And I'm reading a book. Well, I was reading a book now, but I just, I don't know, I kind of lost it. But mm-hmm. And, and I, I thought, yeah, I'll do that. But but when I talked to you is when I thought, well, it doesn't have to be just authors. It could be musicians. And mm-hmm. that's kind of the way it's gone. Though. Like, cause I talked to you and, and uh, Ryan, and uh, I'm going to be doing Wesley and, I'm more I'm more natural with that anyway, and it takes a lot less preparation because I don't have to read the whole book. The book I was reading is like 400 pages, and somehow I only got access to like half of it. I don't know, but but um, yeah. anyway, so I appreciate that. I'll probably go back to the authors pretty soon, but meantime, yeah, back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. cool. Um, good luck with your show. Yeah. Is one more time for the audience. Check out the YouTube group that is called Life After Jehovah's Witnesses. Thank you. I'm also an admin of the Empowered Group. You know, the, you just look up Empowered XJWs or something like that. I am right. an admin. I'm not the. Uh, it's it's basically yeah. Robin's group, but yeah. he's got a bunch of admins, and I happen to be one of them. But I don't really, you know, I I'll, I'll post a video in both groups, but I don't really have anything to do with the direction of the group. It's just mm-hmm. sort of like administering it and yeah. making it say it's it keeps its sanity. But with the Life After Group, it's it, I'm I don't even have a, a helper anymore. I wouldn't mind, you know, if somebody came up to the plate and decided to help. But um, there you go, call out to everybody and who's listening to this. Yeah, yeah, that's far in the interview. Uh, join, hit Gary Elt up for helping out on the Life After Jehovah's Witnesses yeah. Facebook group, and possibly even the show. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Cool. So, thanks yeah. again, Gary. Really appreciate everything. Thanks for helping out with the Kickstarter. You've been, you've done a lot to help spread the word. Um, it's been awesome. We have one day left. Today's our Tomorrow's tomorrow at midnight, California time is our last moment. If you want to support the artists, all the money after we hit our goal, which is like the minimum we could we could meet. So anything that comes after goes directly to the artists. So keep on supporting the project. Um, witnessunderground.com. Everyone, you're awesome. Thanks, Gary. Okay, thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.